folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Stephen Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visit blog and author of a special relationship, Trump Epstein and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visitview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, dot blogspot, also all one word, dot com. And procure a copy of that book, I'm out of works at the farm's official store, which is at eFarmPodcast. That is eFarmPodcast, all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the farm's Patreon. At the lowest tier, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive gifts and content. And our all-access patrons have access to the farm's monthly Zoom party meeting, my State of the Union addresses, periodic write-ups, dispatches from all the adventures I have, insights into the research that's ongoing over here, and all kinds of other goodies. It's a lot of material, guys, so definitely give that a consideration here. All right. I have got a repeater with me for this outing. He's a bit of a jack-of-all-trades. For our purposes here, he is coming to us for his expertise in film and synchromysticism. Folks, I give you guys Clay Vandivar. Clay, thank you so much for joining back again tonight, sir. Always a pleasure, Recluse. Looking forward to taking a deep dive with you here. Yes. All right, guys, this is going to be one of the most epic shows I have yet attempted. It is another installment in the Albacore series, so it's already ambitious by default. But with this installment, and probably the next one, we are going to be covering one of my two all-time favorite filmmakers, David Lynch. In case you're wondering, the other one is Stanley Kubrick. To me, he and Lynch are heads and shores above virtually all other directors who have come before or since. The attention to detail that both filmmakers bring to their works is nothing short but breathtaking. This makes the symbolism and the secret histories they tell in these works all the more powerful. As such, this has been a hard show for me to work on. Again, I love David Lynch's work profoundly. I cannot emphasize that enough. He's about the last person in Hollywood I want to throw shade on. But over the course of researching this series, I kept returning to Lynch's films. And the closer I looked at both Lynch's films uh, that we're going to be looking at in this series, as well as the man himself, the more unsettled I became. This is one of several things I'm hoping to explore in this show. In regards to the Albacore series, Lynch's L.A. trilogy, which includes Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive, and Inland Empire, for those of you unaware, are steeped in its lore. That is to say, the Albacore Club which is the fictional stand-in in Chinatown for the real-life Tuna Club of Havilah. We're going to take a deep dive into both Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive in an effort to unpack some of this lore for you folks. We may get around the Inland Empire at some point as well, but there are a few other works that are a little more pressing at this point. And frankly, I may need the rest of my lifetime to really understand Inland Empire. But anyway, we're going to start with Lost Highway for this outing. This is... Probably my favorite David Lynch film. I, I don't include Fire Walk with me in his feature films because it's so ingrained in the Twin Peaks universe. This one would definitely be very close with Blue Velvet. It's kind of hard to say for me which one is better. But Lost Highway, it's surely his most underrated and overlooked for my money. It came out before Mulholland Drive, which it's very similar to. 
Indeed, the two films really mirror each other, working as a kind of male-female counterpart to the same kind of psychodrama milieu that's being explored. They really are companion pieces, and you should view them together as a kind of combined work, in my opinion. But everyone seems to gravitate to Mulholland Drive. That's understandable. Both films deal with incredibly dark themes, but Lost Highway's far more open about them. And it doesn't have a lesbian sex scene with two gorgeous women in it either. I'm sure that probably didn't hurt uh, and Drive's uh, prospects either. But anyway, it's impossible to ignore the disturbing themes Lynch is playing with in Highway. There's much more subdued, but no less present in and Drive, but just kind of think the in-the-face nature of Lost Highway combined with just the really sinister atmosphere it invokes makes it a difficult watch for a lot of people. So to kind of unpack this a little more, the more I started taking a look at David Lynch's work, the more evident it became to me that there were major references to the Black Dahlia murder in several of the films. What's more, the context in which it was often presented i.e. involving Hollywood actresses involved in porn, smut, and potentially snuff films, was especially unsettling in light of the research I've been engaged in with Clay and a few others. During the previous installment of this series, I suggested that the Santa Catalina Islands mysterious tuna club of Babylon had ties to the Dahlia murder. This is the same gentleman's club that the Noah Cross character in Chinatown heads. There, it was known as the Albacore Club. Hence the name of this series. The real-life Tuna Club of Avalon was a major force behind the creation of modern-day Hollywood in L.A. proper, but especially the former. For instance, the first permanent movie studio in the L.A. area was established by the C-League Polyscope Company in 1909. It was based out of Chicago and founded by William Selig, a one-time stage magician obsessed with adapting L. Frank Baum's Oz books. All right, guys, let that sink in for a moment. The first permanent movie studio in Los Angeles, California, was founded by a stage musician whose primary interest in his company was to stage adaptations of Frank Baum's Oz books. Yeah, you can't make this shit up. Anyway, Selig established his company in the Edendale region of L.A., which now consists of Echo Park, the infamous Silver Lake, the Las Velas neighborhood. The latter also houses the Soden House, where the Dahlia was potentially murdered. As far as I can tell, Selig was not a member of the Tuna Club. But his biggest star, Cowboy Tom Mix, certainly was. A friend of Wyatt Earp, Mix was the John Wayne of the silent era. Mix was Selig's biggest star by far and was eventually lured away by Fox for a hefty payday. It was enough for Mix to establish his own studio at Edendale, dubbed Mixville, located in modern-day Silver Lake. Another Hollywood star and Tuna Club member was Charlie Chaplin. Chaplin was one of the biggest stars of his era, or really any for that matter. As such, I don't think Charlie Chaplin, the actor, needs much of an introduction. Little less now known is that Along with D.W. Griffin, Mary Pickford, and Douglas Fairbanks, he co-founded United Artists Studio in 1919. UA is, of course, one of the most storied Hollywood studios and featured a lot of people involved in this saga that we've already discussed or soon will. 
One of them, for instance, was director and actor John Huston, who released The African Queen through UAA during the early 50s. Another aspect of Chaplin, only just now coming to light, is the likelihood that he was a serial rapist. Virtually every leading woman in Chaplin's films slept with the actor. And this may have been coerced at times. In the case of Joan Barry, there's a possibility she was forced into abortions to cover up the unwanted pregnancies from Chaplin. In the case of Chaplin's second wife, Lita Gray, the actor impregnated her at 16 when he was 35 and then forced her into a shotgun marriage in Mexico. Gray was first cast by Chaplin when she was 12 years old in the role of the kid. Yes, there's evidence he spent several years grooming her before consummating the arrangement, I believe, when she was 15 and he was 34. But even more disturbing is the fact that Gray's mother appears to have gone along with this arrangement. Nor was Gray the only youngster the Chaplin eventually married. Actress Milford Harris, Chaplin's first wife, was 17 when she married the tramp. The relationship began when Harris was 16 and Chaplin was 28. Una O'Neill, his fourth and final wife, had just turned 18 when they wed. I think Chaplin was maybe around 50 at that point in time. So yeah, there is compelling evidence that Chaplin, in addition to being a serial rapist, was also a pedophile. So, to turn to United Artists here for a moment and consider a man who frequently worked as an independent producer through it. This was Hal Roach, a good friend of Chaplin and a fellow Tuna Club member. Like Tom Mix, he also owned his own studio. Roach's biggest star, Stan Laurel of Laurel and Hardy fame, was also a member of the Tuna Club of Babylon, too. Chaplin's third wife, Paulette Goddard, the only one who wasn't a minor when he started sleeping with her, got her star working for Roach as well. That may explain how she ended up with a creep like Chaplin. As to what I mean by that, in 1937, Roach's studio put out a casting call for 120 female dancers. At the time, Roach's studio was distributed via MGM. The latter was putting on a convention and wanted to hold a private party at Roach's studio with a certain kind of female entertainment. But the women who answered the casting call thought that they were going to an actual movie. They still believe this after they were outfitted in skimpy western attire and bust off to Roach's isolated ranch. There, many of them were sexually assaulted by the drunken conventioners. When one woman, Patricia Douglas, attempted to come forward, she was subjected to vicious character assassination by the press, and I think they even hired the Pinkertons to stalk her. So, the potential rape of 120 actresses by these degenerates was covered up for decades. Years before the Douglas incident, the same circle appear in Hollywood's first major sex scandal. It involved good old Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle, another silent film star. In 1921, Arbuckle was charged with raping and murdering actress Virginia Rapp. Arbuckle went through three separate trials, which resulted in his ultimate acquittal. But his career was ruined, and dark rumors persisted that there was more going on to the actress's death than was acknowledged. Arbuckle got his start with Selig before moving over to Keystone. 
Tom Mix was, of course, Selig's biggest star. Mixville, the Selig Studio, and Keystone were all located in Edendale during the 1910s. As such, Arbuckle and Mix at least knew one another socially, if not more formally. As for Charlie Chaplin, he and Arbuckle were close friends. Arbuckle has even been described as a mentor to Charlie Chaplin at times. Apparently, he must have uh, passed on some of his techniques with the ladies to Chaplin. Um, by the way, if you ever look at a picture of Fatty Arbuckle, describing him as creepy is a gross understatement, quite frankly. While I've turned up no evidence that Arbuckle was a member of the Tunic Love of Avalon, he filmed several of his most popular movies on the Santa Catalina Island and regularly vacationed there. Given the staggering amount of controversy that surrounded Arbuckle in 1921, it's likely steps were taken to expunge any record of Arbuckle's involvement nearly a century ago. But there's no question that he was closely tied to all these circles around the Tuna Club guys. And this is especially interesting in light of his longstanding ties to Mabel Norman as well. For those of you unaware, Norman was another early silent film star. Besides Arbuckle, she was also close to Charlie Chaplin and later went to work for Al Roach and his studio. In 1922, the year after Arbuckle's downfall, Norman was implicated in the murder of English director and actor William Desmond Taylor. He was never charged with anything, however. Two years later, her chauffeur shot and wounded Cortland S. Dines, an oil millionaire, with her pistol. Again, no charges were filed. In case you're wondering, uh, the Norman Desmond character from the brilliant, brilliant Billy Wilder film Sunset Boulevard was based on Norman and this series of events. you ever seen Sunset Boulevard, it should give you an indication of the kind of insanity I'm alluding to here. Okay, so one final Duna Club member who played an enormous role in establishing L.A. as the international heart of the film industry was the legendary director and producer Cecil B. Mill. He is, of course, the director of the Charlton Heston version of the Ten Commandments, as well as the earlier version in the silent era. But the Heston version, when adjusted for inflation, is still the eighth highest grossing film of all time. It was, uh, I think, actually DeMille's last movie and a fitting end for a man who was unquestionably the most successful director of the silent age and really one of the big ones of the first half, the talking era as well. He was more or less uh, the Steven Spielberg of the first half of the 20th century. He was a co-founder of Paramount Studio, which Robert Evans would later have a production for. He of Chinatown produced The Godfather and, of course, there's the whole Cotton Club murders thing that he was involved with as well, part of the whole legacy of Paramount and their uh, producers and so forth. <laughs> DeMille also successfully made the transition to the sound era, as I'd mentioned before. Like I said, his successes just kept continuing into the 50s. Unlike a lot of his fellow Tuna Club members, Cecil B. DeMille was never implicated in a major scandal. He did display strong traces of misogyny throughout his life, however, and was known to be extremely extremely verbal abusive with actresses that he worked with. To say nothing of his numerous affairs, but the R word or stories of casting couches are generally not applied to DeMille. For our purposes here, though, what is extremely interesting to note are DeMille's links to the family of Frank Lloyd Wright. DeMille was Wright's closest Hollywood contact, and Wright even designed a home for DeMille's niece. Lloyd Wright 
Frank's L.A.-based son appears to have known DeMille socially as well. Annie Baxter writes granddaughter was one of the stars in DeMille's Ten Commandments. So let's step back for a moment and tie some of these threads together. So you have known Tuna Club members like Cecil B. DeMille, Charlie Chaplin, Tom Mix, and Hal Roach. These are the people responsible for establishing United Artists, Paramount, and putting other studios like 20th Century and MGM on the map. But before this, other Tuna Club members like Henry E. Huntington and H.J. Whitley were scheming with people like former L.A. Mayor Fred Eaton and William Mulholland to bring the San Fernando Valley into L.A. proper. This is why the Edendale area, along with nearby Hollywood Hills, Hollywood proper, are now part of L.A. We get all these storied neighborhoods and parks, places like Laurel Canyon, Beachwood Canyon, Silver Lake, Las Feliz, Echo Park, Griffin Park, Hollywood Land, and so on. All of these schemes. This whole region, along with this film industry that put it on the map, was largely the result of the Tuna Club of Avalon and grew out of their outpost at Santa Catalina Island. So this is the group that created much of central L.A. as we know it today. I'm dwelling on this because we're going to encounter this whole region time and again in both of these David Lynch's movies that we're going to cover, as well as other films that we're going to address in this series. But especially the Edendale area that includes Silver Lake, the Las Feliz and Hollywood Hills areas, the Beachwood and Laurel Canyons and Griffin Park. I don't have to tell you guys, but under the Silver Lake deals with a lot of these areas. So does Mulholland Drive. You guys can think of some other ones. This whole region is very important to somebody for some reason. A lot of time, money, and effort was invested in building up this area, and there's not really a logical reason to do it. L.A. was basically a desert. It took a lot to turn it into the film capital of the world. It could have been done much easier in a lot of other places in the country. So this is one of the things I want you guys to take away from this section. The other is that this group is very much responsible for the whole casting couch culture of Hollywood from literally the beginning of Hollywood. This group has been linked to the infamous casting couch and even the sexual trafficking of actresses. To say nothing of the strange murders surrounding this group in the early days of Hollywood, Eddie Arbuckle, Mabel Norman, and William Desmond Taylor were all part of this milieu of non-actual members of the Tuna Club. And then you've got Good old Charlie Chaplin, be the great serial rapist and pedophile. I think it's finally time to get to David Lynch. It's a good warm-up for all of this. During the second installment of this series, I put forth the premise that the Black Dahlia murder was carried out by figures connected to the Tuna Club. This is a very elaborate web, and for the sake of brevity, I'm not going to delve too deeply into these connections here. Would you guys go listen to the second Albacore one that I did here with Clay and his brother Sam? Lots of good stuff in that one, too. Lots of dialogue stuff there that you should hear to put all this into context. For our purposes here, I'm going to focus on the most relevant link to all of this. Frank Lloyd Wright and his family. If you've been listening to this series, you know I'm supportive of Steve Adele's work on the Black Dahlia murder. Adele is a former LAPD detective who makes a very compelling argument that his father, society doctor George Adele, was the Dahlia murderer. At the time of the killing which was 1947, the Hodel family resided in the Soden House in the Las Feliz area of L.A. George Hodel had numerous friends in Hollywood and was a major supporter of surrealism. He was a close friend of director John Huston. In fact, I think they had gone to school together. 
and probably knew other Hollywood types like actors Vincent Price and Edward G. Robinson, fellow directors like Fritz Lang, scribes like Ben Hitch, all socially through his involvement in the surrealist scene. Another figure Hodel knew was Lloyd Wright, Frank's son. In fact, it was Lloyd Wright who designed the Soden House, using the Mayan style of architecture that his father pioneered. If you've ever seen Blade Runner, this is what I'm talking about, all that, you know, kind of... Uh, Neo-Aztec and Neo-Mayan stuff, that all kind of goes back to the Ennis house that Frank Lloyd Wright designed and his son would continue to build upon. For the Soden house, this is the house Steve Adele believes that the Dahlia was murdered in. It's also interesting to note that Annie Baxter, Frank Lloyd Wright's granddaughter, starred in 1953's The Blue Gardenia. The film was directed by Fritz Lang, was the first one inspired by the Dahlia murder. As noted above, Baxter later starred in Tuna Club member Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments, and DeMille was Frank Lloyd Wright's closest Hollywood contact. What it amounts to is the Wright family turns up time and again in relation to the Black Dahlia murder and the people surrounding it, which is why it's especially interesting to note that David Lynch is a huge fan of not just Frank Lloyd Wright's architecture, but of the whole family's work in that regard. And that may be only scratching the surface. Lynch's longtime romantic partner, editor and producer Mary Sweeney, hails from Madison, Wisconsin. Lynch kept a summer house with her there, starting at some point in the 1990s, I believe, and has been a regular fixture there pretty much ever since. Wright's architecture is, of course, all over Wisconsin, but beyond that, his Talisian studio, his home studio, is only about an hour from Madison. Incidentally, this is where Frank Lloyd Wright's mistress, her two children, and members of his staff and another child were murdered by his cook in 1914. The Soden House is not the only house potentially where a very ritualistic murder occurred that was designed by a member of the Wright family. So, Lynch becomes romantically involved with Sweeney starts making regular trips to Madison. So all unfolds prior to the mid-1990s when Lynch makes his L.A. trilogy. Besides Lost Highway, this trilogy also involves Mulholland Drive and Inland Empire, as previously noted. The films were released between 1997 and 2006. Lynch and Sweeney marry and then divorce in 2006. After that, Lynch doesn't make another feature or TV series until the third season of Twin Peaks over a decade later. This was by far his longest hiatus from filmmaking. Twin Peaks, the third season, came out in 2017, so this was 11 years, and he has not made a feature film since Inland Empire in 2006. It's 2022 as we're recording. The absence is usually attributed to his inability to getting funding, which I used to believe seemed perfectly reasonable. John Waters said so, that he couldn't get funding for anything, so it must be so, right? But I don't believe that not so much anymore, which we'll get to for a moment. But regardless, uh, the L.A. trilogy was a pivotal point in Lynch's career. He started making these films after Twin Peaks went off the rails. At the onset of 1990, Lynch was riding high on the success of Peaks, along with uh, the films Blue Velvet and Wild at Heart. But season two of Twin Peaks was a major bomb in the theatrical follow-up, at least in 1992, was Lynch's biggest flop since Dune. In the span of three years, he went from being the toast of Hollywood to a has-been, basically. Lost Highway was his first attempt at comeback. 
in theory at least. The Trent Reznor produced soundtrack was one of the chickest of the 90s, but the movie failed to return Lynch to hypnos. Then The Straight Story, which uh, Sweeney co-wrote, became a surprise success. So Lynch followed it up with Mulholland Drive, which solidified his return to relevancy. His career was saved. He spent the next five years putting together the final piece of his L.A. trilogy, Inland Empire. This was easily his most challenging experimental film since possibly even Eraserhead. And in hindsight, it may have been intended as his farewell to filmmaking. Increasingly, that's what I think anyway. It's also interesting to note that his relationship with Sweeney, whom he had a child with and who had done so much to revive his career with The Straight Story, she actually was the one who co-wrote that one and had urged him to direct it, ended abruptly in 2006. To kind of digress here, but I think Sweeney's influence on Lynch's career uh, is probably grossly overlooked. It seems like, especially as his editor uh, on a lot of his films, beginning with Blue Velvet, pretty much going forward up through Inland Empire, increasingly he would abandon linear narratives more and more with Sweeney working as his editor. I think that, in a sense, she probably was a big part of that really much more nonlinear approach to storytelling. I mean, Lynch's movies have always been really weird, don't get me wrong, but there's a at least fairly straightforward narratives in most of the stuff that he did prior to fire walk with me and arguably maybe the second season of twin peaks but it really seems like as the collaboration with sweeney became closer his films became less and less linear in their approach to how they explored story character all that other good stuff so kind of another interesting aspect i don't think sweeney though probably gets enough credit for uh, some of lynch's later successes she should to put it mildly I personally think Lynch saw 2006 as a new beginning in his life. After decades of filmmaking, he was ready for the next phase. Nominally, this seems like a striking about face. What would have made Lynch want to abandon filmmaking, one of his great passions? I think the answer resides in that period between the aftermath of the Twin Peaks flameout and 2006 when his primary focus was on the L.A. Trilogy. Hence the reason why we're going to be exploring both of these movies in depth. But before getting to that, I want to explore what David Lynch has been up to in the period between Inland Empire and the third season of Twin Peaks. It's known as the David Lynch Foundation. Lynch set up the foundation in 2005, the year before Inland dropped, and he married and then divorced Sweeney. While Lynch's career had recovered decently by this point, he hardly comes off as someone with the resources to establish a major foundation. On the whole, it seemed like a really curious move at a time when he was working on a new film just as his career was undergoing a resurgence. So what is the purpose of the David Lynch Foundation? Well, if you're any kind of David Lynch fan, you know already the answer to that question. It was established to promote transcendental meditation or commonly referred to as TM. But Lynch had a specific TM agenda in mind with his foundation, to fund the teaching of TM in schools and other public institutions. As the years went on, the focus broadened to, quote, at-risk populations, including the homeless, military veterans, and refugees. Lynch set up this foundation with direct support from the Marisha International University and the broader TM movement. Marisha International University is usually MIU, and that's what I'll be referring it to in a lot of cases here. So just putting it out there in case you're wondering what I'm talking about when I say MIU. 
MIU is the school set up by TM founder Marisha Misha Yoga and arguably the central hub of the movement. Based in Fairfield, Iowa, which is a little over four hours from Madison, Wisconsin, the car. Lynch's foundation is also headquartered in Fairfield. John Hagelin, the head of the TM movement and president of MIU, is on the David Lynch Foundation's board of directors, along with several other individuals directly tied to the school and TM. So it probably goes without saying, but virtually everyone connected to the board is a part of the movement, more or less. One of the most interesting members is Russell Simmons, the founder and former head of Def Jam Records. Simmons has had multiple accusations of rape and other sexual misconduct, some of it involving females as young as 17. Before going any further, it behoves me to say a few things about TM and the movement. I'm sure many of you listening to this are familiar with TM, but for those of you unaware, it's supposedly a secular form of deep meditation developed by Marisha during the 1950s. It's arguably the most popular meditation technique in the West due to both its quote-unquote sexual nature, but especially its simplicity. It doesn't require years of training to learn the fundamentals, but rather just a few hours in total. And once mastered, it can be done in virtually any kind of environment. Maharisha starts teaching it openly around 1955 in his native India, but it was in the West that the technique really caught on. And this was due in large part to its popularity during the 1960s counterculture. Beatles themselves took up TM for a time and made a pilgrimage to study directly with Maharisha. George Harrison apparently practiced TM for the rest of his life, while Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr are still practitioners. John Lennon, not so much. Actually, I believe the, uh, the song uh, Sexy Sadie that John Lennon wrote was about Maharisha. That was uh, more in line with what he thought of the man. It's probably why John was my favorite Beatle. Many 60s counterculture icons took up TM. As the counterculture burned out and fragmented into various strands during the 1970s, TM became very popular among one of the most well-funded remnants, the New Age movement. Through it, TM would become increasingly mainstream throughout the 80s and 90s. In the 21st century, it's clearly one of the most successful organizations among the whole spiritual but not religious crowd. In recent years, it's claimed to have over 5 million practitioners worldwide. Probably an exaggeration, but its cash flow likely is not. It's not short on cash, to put it mildly. Officially, its assets are said to be worth at least $3.5 billion worldwide. Obviously, TM isn't without controversy. There's the obvious. The lavish lifestyle of Maharisha and the upper echelon of the movement at the expense of the rank and file. There's also the inevitable philandering ways of Maharisha, but that's pretty much par of the course as far as gurus go. None of that is especially shocking that the guy would be living in palaces and sleeping around while his followers are instructed to embrace poverty and celibacy. While TM as a technique appears to be fairly vegan, there are three things about the movement that raise some serious red flags for me. The first are its persistent claims to a secular nature. As a former TM instructor, Ari Siegel overwhelmingly demonstrates in the brilliant work The Transcendental Deception, this is clearly not the case. The big rite of passage in TM is the puja. This is an ancient Hindu ritual in which a channel of transmission is created between a divine object of worship and the one performing the ceremony. 
Typically, it would involve a Hindu deity or guru, but Maharisha made his up. The Tiyam Puja is performed in Sanskrit, the ancient language of the Vedics, or written in. For decades, the movement refused to provide translations of them. And that's because they clearly invoke the Hindu pantheon. The Tiyambuja is taught to the teachers. Students then perform a ceremony with the teachers involved in it. They're asked to bring simple things as offerings, like a white handkerchief, flowers, or fruit. They go to a designated place, typically the home of a teacher that's been purified. Yes, this is a big thing in Fairfield. You have to have an apartment or a house that's been blessed, that, you know, meat has not been consumed in, all this other good stuff. The offerings are put in a container, and then the student goes into a room barefoot, and on incense is burning, sometimes on an altar, which is said, and the student gets his or her mantra, which they recite mentally while doing TM. The ceremony in and of itself doesn't seem especially nefarious. But again, what bothers me is the denial of its religious nature. Maharisha viewed the ceremony and the mantras as essential to TM because it created a mystical connection between the gurus and the deities. So clearly the founders saw this as a spiritual practice. And again, Sequel gets into this in Transcendental Deception with actual notes from meetings that the team hierarchy had about this. I mean, they basically acknowledge in the upper echelons that there are channeling in these ceremonies with deities. And yet it's universally promoted as a secular form of meditation. This is clearly disingenuous. Perhaps stealth could be justified back in the 60s to find the radar of Christian fundamentalists, but does it still matter in 2022? Well, Yes, if you want to continue getting federal funding. And that brings me to the second issue I have with the movement. The epic graph it commits. TM receives millions in federal funding, much of it from public schools. Elsewhere, the university makes a killing off of student loans, while it offers degree in Vedic sciences and how to levitate. I mean, they don't actually do the degree in levitation, but that is something that is taught at the school how you can levitate. Some other things I could point out with this, you basically have like a circuit of aging hippies, senior citizens who just more or less sign up for one degree after another and uh, extract student loans to do so. This is a kind of lifestyle in Fairfield, mildly. So in a lot of ways, MIU, it's the Liberty University of the New Age movement to be nice. Indeed, I could go even further and equate it with the moral majority movement of the New Age. But at least the moral majority wore its religion on its sleeve. TM still claims to be a secular movement, which it is not. And again, I have no problems with Hinduism. All for it. Totally fine if you want to practice it. More power to you. But it's not a secular movement. And more to the point, both the moral majority and the TM movement make a mockery of the separation of church and state which I firmly believe in. Now, again, this is not an issue trying to attack TM because it may be related to Hinduism. I think the university is equally disgusting. And shows attack. I hate Liberty University. I think it should be defunded from federal funding immediately. I feel the same way about MIU. It's not the government's place to fund this kind of stuff. My personal opinion. I think it brings us into a real slippery slope. And don't get me wrong. Meditation can be stripped of its spirituality and used as a secular technique. And certainly there actually are secular forms of meditation out there. TM just isn't one of them. And a lot of these other secular meditation techniques charge significantly less money than what TM charges to learn them. 
this is another thing I find a little silly. This is a movement worth billions of dollars, supposedly dedicated to world peace. But until just, I think, a few years ago, they were still charging nearly $1,000 for some of the services for people to learn the techniques. And brings me to the third issue I have with the movement, which is its possible involvement with human trafficking. So what do I mean by that? Well, let me read a passage here from the Transcendental Deception. Pages 70 and 71. While the Brahmistan in India may be desolate, this is uh, one of the cities that the TM movement had set up in India, bigger problems have been brewing at TM Putin's operation in Vedic City, USA, i.e. Fairfield, Iowa. For several years, the Vedic City pundits, these were Indian migrants, workers who were brought over to the United States, when I say pundits, remained out of sight. Few people were aware of their existence in barrack-style housing, which was down an unmarked road and behind a fenced enclosure. A guard was posted at the entrance of the barracks to keep the pundits in and the curious out. Again, this is in Fairfield, Iowa, not India. Fairfield, Iowa. In January 2014, the India Times newspaper reported a shocking revelation of 1,050 young Indians who had been brought to Mashari Vedic City. At least 163 had gone missing in the prior year. The paper reported that the pundits had been recruited through literature distributed in poor Indian villages where they were promised a high school education after which they would be trained as, quote, masters of Hindu religious rites and services. Note that when the TM movement was recruiting these pundits to come work in Fairfield, they explicitly noted that they would be trained as masters in Hindu religion. Anyway, continuing with transcendental deception. According to the report, the education provided was rarely above the fifth grade level, but that was the least of the issues. Young Indian men were transported to Iowa on visas that allowed them to remain in the U.S. for two years with a possible six-month extension. TM authorities required that they surrender their passports when they arrived. The pundits were not allowed to leave the barracks. They earned $50 per month, with an additional $150 per month paid either to them or their parents in India at the end of the two years. Payment reportedly required a pundit's good behavior during the contract term. The article further stated that the contract was drafted in English and not translated or explained to the recruits or their families. Besides the meager pay, isolation, and living conditions, what could possibly cause the pundits to go missing? According to William Goldstein, Dean of Global Development and General Counsel to the Mashari University of Management, they appear to have been induced to leave by individuals providing false information of high-paying jobs or by unscrupulous employers taking advantage of them. Not that the university would take advantage of them, mind you. <laughs> Meanwhile, despite all who disappeared with their passports left behind, the Indian Consulate in Chicago reported that the Global Country of World Peace, GCWP, the arm of the TM that was responsible for the young men, never sent the missing pundit's passports to the consulate as required by the State Department, nor did it provide any missing persons information to the appropriate authorities. And according to the Sheriff and Police Departments of Fairfield, Iowa, no missing persons reports 
or ever filed with them either. On March 11, 2014, about 80 pundits in Vedic City rioted by shaking, vandalizing, and throwing rocks at a sheriff's truck. A news team from local television stations captured the aftermath of the uprising. Reportedly, the pundits were upset that the sheriff was removing one of their friends to be sent back to India. The sheriff said arrests would have been made had his video camera been working. Without a video, he stated he could not positively identify Mashari's professional peacemakers who had threatened him and damaged his car. Five months later, Ajita Pandey, having fled the GCWP pundit program, was brutally murdered outside an Atlanta food store where he had been working 15-hour shifts. These were the high-paying jobs that they were apparently being lured away from, by the way. Ajita was reportedly the sole breadwinner in his family. According to the article, no one at the GCWP took responsibility to send Ajita's remains back to his distraught widowed mother in India. Among those not helping was Mashari's nephew in India, who heads global operations of the sponsoring university. Uh, where have all the pundits gone? After the pundit riot, Fairfield Mayor Ed Malwoy called for more transparency about how the program operated. Perhaps as a result of the negative publicity and outside attention to the program, almost all the pundits were sent back to India. According to one recent report, fewer than 25 pundits were still living in Vedic City, down from the 1,000 before the riots. Okay. To sum up, 163 of these pundits simply went missing in 2014 alone. No doubt some of them may have simply been trying to escape MIU and either return home or seek a better life here, but some may not have been so fortunate. What's especially disturbing about Fairfield is that it's not far from I-80. Fairfield is about an hour from Iowa City specifically, which is where the University of Iowa is located. I-80 cuts right through that all the way up through Des Moines, if I remember correctly. In the aftermath of the disappearance and murder of Molly Tibbetts, a University of Iowa student, so just note it was located in Iowa City, reports to merge that I-80 was a major hub of human trafficking. Naturally, authorities were quick to deny these connections in the case of the Tibbetts murder. The conventional narrative holds that Tibbetts was abducted and murdered by Christiana Bahina Rivera during 2018. Tibbetts disappeared on July 18th and her body was recovered on August 21st. Rivera allegedly held Tibbetts against her will for several weeks before murdering her. Because of Rivera's undocumented status, Donald Trump attempted to politicize this incident as well. Indeed, one could argue that Rivera's immigration was used to detract from other aspects of the case. Rivera claimed during his trial that two masked men had abducted him at gunpoint and forced him to drive around. Eventually, they came upon Tibbetts, whom one of the men stabbed to death. Then her body was placed in Rivera's car and he was told to dispose of it. The jury found this account unconvincing and found him guilty in 2021. So during the summer of that year, after he was convicted but before he was sentenced, some interesting developments occurred. Probably the best account appeared in the UK-based Daily Mail from July 21st, 2021. It's an article entitled, Investigators say there is no connection between Molly Tibbetts' murder and the disappearance of an 11-year-old boy despite claims by the killer's defense. So what happened is that just prior to sentencing, Rivera's attorneys were informed that two separate informants had come forward and confirmed the substance of Rivera's claims, that he had been abducted by two men and used to dispose of Tibbetts' body. 
Rivera was selected because it was felt that as an illegal immigrant, he would make a compelling fall guy for the crime. Three men were implicated. The men who abducted Rivera and actually murdered Tibbetts were named as Gavin Jones, 21, and Dalton Hansen, 24. But the man who allegedly ordered the crime was a fellow named James Lowe. He's 50 years old and a former resident of Ashland, Kentucky. If you've listened to any of my shows on U.S. Route 23, you know that it is a major hub of human trafficking in both Michigan and Ohio. U.S. Route 23 also cuts right through Ashland, Kentucky, which is not far from Ohio. And also it goes into Georgia and another stretch that is a major hub of human trafficking. So, you know, could be some interesting things happening there. Anyway, that's that's hardly the only suspect thing about Lowe. At the time when this evidence was presented to Rivera's defense team, an 11-year-old boy named Xavier Harrelson had gone missing in the same Iowa County Tibbetts and Lowe both lived in. What's more, Lowe just happened to be the live-in boyfriend of Harrelson's mother at the time of the kid's disappearance. Xavier disappeared on May 27, 2021, the day before Rivera was found guilty of first-degree murder. Rivera was sentenced to life in prison on August 30th, and Harrelson's body turned up a month later on September 30th. That wasn't enough. Rivera's defense team also learned that Lowe had previously been investigated for sex trafficking in Tippett's hometown during 2018, the year of her disappearance. Lowe's operation appears to have run along I-80, but he only oversaw one particular hub of the ring. It appears to have involved at least several states. Basically, Lowe was just a regional manager in Brooklyn, Iowa, and possibly in Iowa City. Allegedly, Tibbetts was abducted with the intention of trafficking her, but after her case became a national obsession, it was decided that she was a little too high profile and needed to be disposed of. Prosecutors had reports of prior sex trafficking investigations in the area Tibbetts was abducted at. And yet, they never informed the defense of this. And when Rivera's attorneys learned of these investigations, they requested that the judge order prosecutors to make these reports available to them. The judge dismissed this request on the grounds that it would be, quote, nothing more than a fishing expedition. So, the judge in the case refused to turn over evidence to the defense team in regards to sex trafficking. This is really suspect, guys, and it's unfolding only about an hour from the Marsharia International University and in Fairfield, Iowa. This wouldn't look nearly as sketchy if people connected to the TM movement didn't have a history of sexual violence. We've already talked about Russell Simmons. But Fairfield, Iowa has an especially interesting resident in that regard. That would be former Seventh Heaven star Stephen Collins, a longtime TM practitioner. In 2014, same year, 163 pundits went missing in Fairfield, Iowa. Collins was investigated by the New York Police Department for sexually abusing a minor of 14. During that same year, he acknowledged abusing three girls under the ages of 18 between the years 1974 and 1992. He was never charged, and he relocated to Fairfield, where he's been sheltered by the TM movement ever since. Collins is not the only actor who lives in Fairfield either. In fact, it has a considerable number of residents tied to Hollywood as well as the music industry and athletics who reside there. 
I've been told by people who have lived there that there are some extremely wealthy individuals in and around the Fairfield area tied to the school and the TM movement. So you have all of these wealthy VIP types in an isolated town in Iowa. Its main institution, MIU, was implicated in trafficking undocumented workers, a fair amount of whom simply disappeared. And this community is located less than an hour from an interstate that may be a key artery in an interstate sex trafficking ring. I'm sure this is all just a coincidence, though. Like, you've been to Fairfield, and recently, this is just a coincidence, right, man? Um, yeah, man, uh, total coincidence. <laughs> um, yeah, Fairfield is a really weird place, man. You get the vibe that something is going on. Now, it's not overt. It's not like a town that we'll talk about in, a, in an upcoming episode, La Crosse, Wisconsin. But you get the impression something's not above board in the town. And that's really all I can say about it from that perspective. I, I did not go exploring Maharishi University. If i known what we know now, I would have been exploring every aspect possible. And I would have probably tried to drive down the road with the guard at the gate. But yeah, it's a very strange town, and all I can say is that the fact that there's so much human trafficking there and the police almost seem to be asleep at the wheel really makes you wonder about you know the control they have over the town. And that's all I can say for now. But I, I do find it really interesting that it was the last town I did a series of jobs in Iowa, and it was the last town that I was working on. And coincidentally, my machine that, that I work with broke down three separate times. And it was always when I was going to try and get Fairfield. So I found that kind of interesting in, in a synchronicity level. And the fact that I've even been there as well, in relation to all this research we've been doing, I found that very strange. So that is what I have to say about Fairfield. Okay, so again, guys, this is where the David Lynch Foundation is headquartered. What's more, Lynch sponsors a film program out of MIU. And for his support, his foundation has been lavishly rewarded, to put it mildly. In 2022, it was tapped to spearhead a $500 million. $500 million global peace initiative on behalf of the movement. And of course, he's working with MIU in this regard. I now return to the suggestion that David Lynch went 11 years between Inland Empire and Twin Peaks Season 3 because he couldn't get funding for anything. I submit that he opted to drop out of filmmaking so that he could focus on promoting TM. If the money his foundation is bringing in is any indication, being a guru appears to be a hell of a lot more lucrative than a director unless you happen to be named Steven Spielberg. This may explain why a guy so hard up for funding allegedly had the clout to dictate terms to Showtime over his return to TV in 2017 after his last series over, what, three decades ago had crashed and burned in a spectacular fashion, which was the same one he was reviving. Not that I think it's just about the money for Lynch. Not by a long shot. There was a much deeper purpose to his establishment of the David Lynch Foundation in 2005, much like his decision to make Twin Peaks Season 3 in 2017. I suspect one person keenly aware of this was 
Mary Sweeney. Recall, Lynch abruptly filed for divorce from her months after their marriage began in 2006. This was a year after he set up the foundation and just as Inland Empire was finishing up. At the time, they had a teenage son together. What transpired that made it in their marriage months after it began and after years of being together? It would seem that there was possibly some bad blood still lingering as well. As I had noted earlier, Sweeney has been a big part of everything Lynch has done since Blue Velvet. And this includes Twin Peaks. But she seemingly was not invited back for season three. And that's an especially going admission given, you know, the effort that they went to bring the old team back for the third season. Again, I, I don't like throwing shade on David Lynch. And I hesitate even bringing some of this stuff up in regards to MIU and TM. But I think it's very relevant in light of certain things presented in Lost Highway and Lynch's L.A. trilogy. But on that note, let's finally start talking about Lost Highway since we're, I think, over an hour into this. and We really haven't even gotten to it yet. So, But even before I can get into the film proper, I do need to get into some of the casting and music used in this work. Kind of going back before, and this is why I will defend Lynch, the director, to my dying breath, because Lynch, regardless of what he is in his personal life, is... An incredible artist that cannot be denied. The amount of detail Lynch put into this film, into Lost Highway, and the locations, the artwork is staggering. It's Kubrick level attention to detail. You really have to view Lost Highway as a similar kind of work. I think that'll be evident as I break down some of the players behind the scenes. Let's start with Patricia Arquette, the film's. She's from the famous Arquette acting family, as I'm sure many of you are aware. This also includes David, Rosanna, and Alex, I think. There's a lot of them out there. What you may not be aware of is that for a time, the family was living in the Subud commune during the actress's youth. This is a particular cult that grew out of Indonesia beginning in the 1920s. It began to spread into the West during the 1950s. For a time, there was even some overlap with the followers of Gurdjieff in the UK. For our purposes here, what's most noteworthy, however, about the Arquette family is that they are apparently descendants of Meriwether Lewis of Lewis and Clark Bank. A lot of mystery surrounds Meriwether Lewis, who was also part of the extended family of uh, Thomas Jefferson. Both men claimed Welsh ancestry and reportedly one of Lewis's secret missions for Jefferson while exploring with Clark was to determine the legitimacy of the legends of Welsh Indians, with quotations around that. Both Lewis and Jefferson were obsessed with the Native American mounds and like earthworks. Lewis later committed suicide at a fairly young age, I think he was like 35, which has spurred a conspiracy theory or two in its day. What's more, Mark Frost, the co-creator of Twin Peaks, and grossly overlooked in my opinion, later incorporated some of these notions into one of his tie-in Twin Peaks books, with Meriwether Lewis, that is to say. And a lot of the theories surrounding the actual purpose of his omission from Jefferson and his death. I suspect Lynch also had an interest in such subjects. His longtime home is in Madison, and it was located on Governor's Island, which contains uh, several uh, striking effigy mounds. It's also interesting to note these effigy mounds. They're thunderbirds and things like that, but they're pretty much only really visible from the air, much like the serpent mound. 
It's another interesting thing about this whole area where Lynch had his vacation home in Madison. In fact, Wisconsin is awash with these same kind of mounds too. It's probably got the highest concentration of them in North America. Another interesting side note around Governor's Island, close to where Lynch's summer home was, there's a mental institution there. In this mental institution, it was the final home of Ed Gein. Yes, uh, the basis of Psycho, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Ed Gein, who made a, tried to make a suit out of human flesh and furniture and all this other stuff, that Ed Gein. There's an asylum right there on Governor's Island amongst the striking refugee mounds that can be seen from the air that Ed Gein spent his last days around. Again, you just cannot make this shit up. And David Lynch later had a summer house in the same area. Anyway, next up in terms of the Lost Highway cast is Balthazar Getty. He is a member of the Getty Oil Dynasty, which branched into Hollywood and sponsored some of the most peculiar art over the years. Probably their most famous person that they backed financially was Kenneth Anger. Yes, the infamous occultist, Crowleyite, and all that other good stuff. I'm sure many of you are aware of the Gettys. I'm not going to delve too deeply into it here. Balthazar's character has a girlfriend in the film, briefly played by Natasha Grigson Wagner. This is Natalie Wood's daughter, who was raised by Robert Wagner. As I'm sure many of you are aware, legendary actress Natalie Wood drowned under very suspect circumstances in 1981. To this day, there are allegations that Wagner played a role in her death. For our purposes here, there are two especially interesting things about Wood I want to note. First off, her first big on-screen role as an adult was in Rebel Without a Cause, the legendary James Dean film. A lot of speculation, of course, surrounds Dean's death at 24 in 1955. Thus, two of the film's stars died under murky circumstances. This is especially interesting in light of the fact that the movie was directed by a fellow named Nicholas Ray. Ray grew up in La Crosse, Wisconsin. It's a very interesting place, as Clay had noted before. And before getting into film, he studied architecture. Specifically, he apprenticed at Frank Lloyd Wright's Felician Fellowship in Spring Green, Wisconsin. just less than an hour from Madison. So yeah, Ray personally knew Frank Lloyd Wright prior to making Rebel. He's from McCloss. May have been the base of operations for the Smiley Face Killers several decades later. And by the way, uh, Wright's final wife, Ogliana, was a longtime devotee of Gurdjieff. In fact, Wright's fellowship was nearly turned into a full-blown Gurdjieff group by her on several occasions. It was basically a cult, to put it mildly, but that's another topic. It's also interesting to note that in 1955, the same year that Rebel Without a Cause dropped and Dean died, Natalie Wood co-starred in One Desire with Annie Baxter. Let's not recall that Annie Baxter is Lloyd Wright's granddaughter. So, some interesting Wright connections to one of Wood's most storied films, and then some. Beyond that, there's also the place that Natalie Wood drowned. It was off the coast of the Santa Catalina Islands, the same place the Tuna Club of Avalon is based. Really just a coincidence, right? Okay, so that's some of the gentry in this movie. People have got some pretty prestigious backgrounds. People from somewhat less prestigious upbringings are of no less interest, however. Most notably, Robert Blake. In fact, the presence of Blake in this movie is profoundly disturbing on so many levels, but most especially in regards to how Lost Highway's plot parallels the real-life murder Blake was accused of. And that would be Bonnie Lee Backley, 
marriage was something of a hobby for 43 when she would Blake. Uh, he was her 10th husband. Only three of her previous nine marriages had lasted longer than a year. This may have been due to the nature of her job. She started out running a mail-order business that dealt nude photos of women, including herself. From there, she branched into a, quote, lonely heart scheme involving ads soliciting a male companion. Often, she would request money for rent or travel expenses for those who respond. It's likely some of her marriages were related to such scams. Also of note is that her longest marriage, spanning a whopping five years, was to a bloke named Paul Gahalron? Where did these guys get the names? Anyway, this was her first cousin, whom she had two kids with. They divorced in 1982, but she appears to have remained close to Paul for years afterwards. She left a child with him that she had in 1993 to raise, for instance. So while the mail-order business created some legal issues for Bonnie, it proved to be quite lucrative. She came to own several houses around Memphis, Tennessee, keep that in mind, and one in Los Angeles. During the late 1980s, she relocated to L.A. permanently to pursue a career in film and music. As the story goes, she was celebrity-obsessed and attempted to become pregnant via several of them. First up was good old Jerry Lee Lewis, whom she claimed to have had a kid with until DNA tests said otherwise. The daughter in this fiasco was the one that she left with her ex-husband and first cousin Paul Gawron. She also took a swing at Dean Martin and Gary Busey, Blake's future co-star in Lost Highway. But it wasn't until she started corresponding with Christian Brando that she made some real headway. He was a minor actor whose big claim to fame was being the son of Marlon Brando. When Bonnie approached him in 1991, he had become a media sensation in his own right after having killed Dag Rollett, his half-sister's then-boyfriend. Christian avoided being convicted of murder thanks in no small part to the testimony of his famous father, but he was found guilty of manslaughter. He was sentenced to 10 years in prison, but of course he did not serve the whole sentence. During the time that he did serve, Bonnie wrote him regularly. After Brando was released in 1996, they became romantically involved. Shades of Sandra London in a way. Another interesting thing about this kind of stuff. I don't want to digress too much. Anyway, this continued for several years. That is to say, Bonnie corresponding with Brando, not Sandra corresponding with whether serial killer she was looking for dirt on at the time. In 1999, Bonnie met Robert Blake and began seeing him while she was still seeing Christian Brando on the side. She became pregnant during that year and initially believed the daughter was Brando's. When it turned out to be Blake's, they agreed to get married. But Blake insisted on strict terms, including supervised visits of her daughter, and Bonnie needed written permission for her friends and families to even visit Blake's property. They get married in 2000. Bonnie's murdered in 2001 in the parking lot of an upscale restaurant in the passenger side seat of Blake's car. She was killed via a single gunshot wound to the head. Blake was charged with murder and soliciting a hitman to carry it out but ultimately acquitted. But like OJ, he was later found guilty in a civil suit brought about by Bonnie's kids, effectively bankrupting him. 
Basically, you have a husband potentially murdering his wife who comes from a shady background, possibly involving porn, prostitution, and underworld figures. And there's the ongoing uncertainty to whether she ever gave up this life. More or less, this is the situation the Bill Pullman character is in at the onset of Lost Highway. Fittingly, the film proved to be Blake's last on-screen appearance as well up to this point. Though Quentin Tarantino apparently partly based the Brad Pitt character in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood upon Blake and dedicated the freaking film to him. You know, of all the people you could dedicate a movie to, obviously Robert Blake would be top of the list. Anyway, if all this is not creepy enough, Lynch apparently went all out to get Marlon Brando to appear in Lost Highway. As recounted in Room to Dream, uh, this sort of quasi-autobiography Lynch co-wrote, Lynch had befriended Brando during the early 90s, and after the actor shot him down to appear in Lost Highway, he was still desperate for Brando to have some kind of involvement. So he arranged for a private screening of the movie for Brando in 1996, a couple months before it was released. Apparently, Brando's assessment was that it was, quote, a damn good movie, but it won't make a dime. Then could be said of virtually everything Lynch has done, but whatever. Really, the cast for this movie is just unbelievable on a lot of levels. Bowery mentioned Gary Busey. I mean, you also had Robert Lagoya, Giovanni Risby, rocker Henry Rollins, previously Black Flag before going solo. You have uh, Lynch regulars like Jack Nance and Scott Coffey. Michael Massey, who played Fun Boy on The Crow and who was the individual who fired the gun that killed Brandon Lee. He's in this. And another interesting actor in a small role is Richard Pryor, yes, the famous comedian. Clay, do you have any thoughts on Pryor's involvement in this film? Yeah, I, I do. I mean, number one, it's really interesting. This is essentially the second to last time he appeared on screen. He, he was still doing comedic performances up until before his death but he was in a tv show called norm in 1999 and for one episode as a guest role and then he was also in malcolm and eddie in 1996 in a guest role he was in a movie called mad dog time jimmy the grave digger in 1996 but this is a role that like he i think was pretty pivotal for him at this point in, in his career he really wasn't doing much so for him to come out on a film like this, the role had to be kind of significant in, in the movie as well. And what's really interesting, when we meet Arnie, he gives Pete Dayton, Baltazar Getty's character, a Masonic handshake. And I think the symbolism of that is that they're doing Mason's work in Hollywood. This is a really important distinction. I don't mean that they're willingly doing it. I mean that they're doing it without it being outside of their control. And I think that Arnie's character, you know, he's running a mechanic shop that is servicing criminal types like Robert Loggia's character, Mr. Eddie. I think it's meant to say that in Hollywood, even legends like Richard Pryor is not an actor. He's not just a comedian. He's not just an actor. He's a legend. I mean, he's on a short, short list of comedians in the pantheon of Hollywood. And I think that by casting him in this role as a running a service mechanic shop that services like these criminal types like Mr. Eddie, it's showing that even legends are not immune from working for these people. And 
working for the mafia types, working for the controllers in Hollywood. You can think you're the most creative artist in the world, the funniest comedian, and you think you're iconoclastic and counterculture and you're going to smack the system in the face, but that really doesn't exist in Hollywood. I mean, even David Lynch had to get money from Studio Canal in France to make his films, which is a major, major investment bank-backed funding source for Hollywood films. And it's also one really important thing to note about Lynch on this note is that he does a really wonderful job of showing you how the mafia is involved in Hollywood. And he does it subtly and with humor, like Mr. Eddie's tailgating scene in Lost Highway or the scene where the the two the two Castigliani brothers go to Ryan Entertainment and they're worrying about whether or not he'll like the best espresso in the world or the scene in Mulholland Drive where you have the giant goon guy going into Adam Kesher's house and knocking out Billy Ray Cyrus and knocking out Adam Kesher's wife. He's showing you through comedy but in a very serious way that Hollywood is run by a mafia. There's a mafia type force in Hollywood. I, I don't know that they run it, but they're involved in so many aspects of it that they're almost interchangeable with Hollywood. So I think it was another way of showing that and showing that even Hollywood legends are not immune from this control structure. Yeah, that's why I think it's especially interesting that he tried to get Brando to be in it too, especially since exactly. we, we don't know for sure, but we think he pro Brando probably would have been cast as the Robert Loja character, which that would have made you know the whole thing with Pryor uh, character even more inter interesting because I mean the Loge character, the uh, Mr. Eddie slash Dick LeBond character, is basically the you know kind of Mickey Cohen stand-in in this movie. Uh, yeah. So uh, it's possible though Brando might have played one of the uh, the cops too, which would have been also equally interesting as well. But anyway, I don't want to get too sidetracked with that. But that is a great aspect though that you brought up about the attempt to get legends because in a sense you could probably say the same thing about Robert Blake. If I'm not mistaken, I actually think Blake had the longest career in Hollywood of anyone because he actually started out as like a child actor, I think, back on like the Rascals, if I'm not mistaken, and like the yeah, like 30s or something like that. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. not quite that far, but I mean, yeah, he had been making movies, uh, you know, for I think 60 years or something like that, but the Dunlost Highway came out. So oh, you, know, you, you could absolutely argue that Robert Blake was a legend at that time without question yeah so that's an excellent point i think that that's you know a big part of the casting and something that again lynch was trying to make a point with but the casting in his films is always i think especially beginning with blue velvet onwards is very precise with a lot of the players that he uses but anyway so much for the cast I wanted to say a bit about the soundtrack now. Most people are actually a lot more familiar with the soundtrack than the film itself. The soundtrack actually went gold in the 90s. I mean, if you grew up in the 90s and you were into heavy rock, this soundtrack, along with The Crow and Spawn, were in your freaking CD case. There was no way around it. All three of these soundtracks were just huge also in mainstreaming industrial metal in particular. So in the case of Lost Highway, Trent Reznor, the main figure behind Nine Inch Nails, surely the most popular industrial band of all times, was brought in to assist with the score and the soundtrack. 
He also contributed an end song, the hit single The Perfect Drug. Marilyn Manson and the, the uh, then unknown Romstein were also used in the film during key scenes. In fact, Manson, along with uh, his guitarist at the time, Puggy Ramirez, have especially disturbing cameos in Lost Highway, which we'll get to in a little bit. But I see the use of industrial metal in this film as being quite significant. If you guys are familiar with William Ramsey's work on the Smiley Face Killers, you know that a Nin music video appears to bear some striking overlap with the theories about how the Smiley Face killings actually play out. But beyond that, Nin and many other top industrial bands were recording in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin during the late 80s and the early 90s before the murders started. And it's interesting, too, because this recording studio was in a resort owned by Hugh Hefner, Playboy Anthony. And besides the you know industrial bands, you had other groups like Red Hot Chili Peppers there, uh, Anthony Keats, the frontman of the Peppers. His girlfriends are usually very young. And let's just say uh, growing up in Daytona Beach, Florida, when uh, MTV, you know, used to do the spring break stuff there before Daytona became super lame. Peppers went there a time or two to play. And, you know, I knew some people who worked at those events. I heard some things. Yeah. Yeah. So those were the kinds of people coming there recording. And just kind of happens, Wisconsin is before major hub of smiley face killer activity. This sheds a bit of an ominous light on the use of music in Lost Highway. I know some people may be thinking I'm reaching with that, but consider the David Bowie song used, I'm Deranged. Okay, so not only is this song taken from Bowie's Industrial Leaning Outside album, which is freaking amazing, by the way, it's one of his best and should be acknowledged as such, but the entire work is a concept album about ritual murder as an art form, okay? Again, the David Bowie song that they are using for this score is from an album that Bowie wrote with the entire theme of ritual murder as an art form. Think about that in the context of the Danya murder and George Hodel's obsession with surrealism. He was a good friend of Man Ray, the surrealist artist, collected a lot of these kinds of works. And there's that whole thing with the exquisite corpse, the original cut-up method, which did not originate with Burroughs. That's another topic. But anyway, to my mind, this use of the Bowie song is very pointed in light of things that appear in this movie later that we'll get to. And it probably goes without saying, but Bowie has all kinds of interesting connections with uh, the occult and all this other stuff. Again, I'm sure most of you listening to this are aware of that. I'm not going to belabor that point. And while it's not on the official soundtrack, this mortal was Elizabeth Fraser's uh, version of uh, Song of the Siren is used at several key points in the film. So I'll note here at a few points. Lynch was obsessed with this song for years and badly wanted to use it in Blue Velvet. Instead, he enlisted Julie Cruz to be a stand-in for Elizabeth Fraser, and this is how you ended up with you know all that great music and Twin Peaks that she did. Basically, this was all Lynch's attempt to recreate the vibe of Elizabeth Fraser's version of Song of the Siren with this mortal coil and her work with Cockatoo Twins. He was big into this. As I know many of you listening to this are aware, you're also fans of Christopher Knowles' The Secret Son. Probably don't need to delve too much into his take on Fraser, but for those of you unaware. Chris has argued that she is a vessel for the muses and that her lyrics are a kind of channeled communication. 
and frankly, I suspect Lynch harbors similar sentiments, which plays into why Siren is used in this film in certain key passages. Chris Knowles has also argued that it was part of a ritual involving singer Jeff Buckley, Fraser's one-time lover, in his sudden drowning in 1997. Not only is that the same year Lost Highway was released, but Buckley also drowned in Memphis, Tennessee. Let's recall that Bonnie Lee Backley owned several properties around Memphis at one point. Though I don't know if she still did at the time of Buckley's death or not. And again, there's the whole drowning smiley face killers thing, too. So it's very strange. There's, I mean, probably a lot more that could be said about the soundtrack. I mean, Lou Reed's on it. Smashing Pumpkins. Even one of the more obscure inclusions is extremely fascinating. And that's Barry Adamson and his jazz instrumentals. Adamson actually cut his teeth as the bass player for the post-punk band magazine before sending on with Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. Addison played bass and numerous other instruments on a lot of Cave's classic 80s albums before Adamson went solo. And this was pretty much all of the early ones, too. Adamson was a big, under-acknowledged part of, I think, Cave's early success, to put it mildly. While not an industrial artist per se, Nick Cave was close to many of the early industrial bands and frequently collaborated with them. This kind of went back to the you know, sort of overlap with Robin Gristle and Cave's prior band, The Birthday Party, back in the day. Cave also has a keen interest in the occult, given the circles he's traveled in. I mean, that's pretty much part of the course. Probably true of Adamson as well, but so much for the soundtrack. Let's finally get into the actual movie here. Upon rewatching it recently with fresh eyes, one glaring thing that stood out to me is how blatantly it addresses the Dahlia murder and how personal the film is to David Lynch. Okay, so this is evident from the beginning in the choice of the location that the Madison couple resides in. The last name of the Bill Pullman character and his wife, Renee, the one that Patricia Arquette plays as the first character, it's a dead giveaway. Madison. Madison, Wisconsin, where Lynch kept his summer house with Sweeney for years. It's actually where Mary Sweeney's from originally. It's also where the family of Frank Lloyd Wright had a lot of dealings over the years. If the name Madison isn't enough, Lynch casts an actor for the lead around the same age as he was when he made the film and who bore a bit of a resemblance to him. Lost Highway, Pullman is even made to look even more like Lynch, I would argue, than usual. And his character plays saxophone in an avant-garde jazz group professionally. If you know Lynch, you know he's a saxophonist who's recorded several albums of material in that vein. So... I submit the Fred Madison character is partially a stand-in for Lynch. I know many will object to this interpretation because of the comments the Madison character makes about video cameras. He notes that he doesn't own one because uh, it's something to the effect he says he doesn't like to remember things the way they happen, but in his own way. Thus, Madison vigorously avoids being filmed. So besides being a director, Lynch is known to cast himself in his own works. Obviously, he famously appeared in Twin Peaks as Gordon Cole, and occasionally even appears in other people's works as well. So this seems to discount Madison as Lynch, right? Well, maybe not entirely. Lynch films are largely skew conventional narrative, preferring a highly symbolic language that is uniquely Lynch's. It's also interesting to note that Lynch generally prefers print interviews to recorded ones and lows behind the scenes of features on films and such things. 
I suspect that while Lynch is fine making films, portraying characters in films, and even being the David Lynch persona in interviews, he may be far more inclined towards privacy in his personal life. But if you're still not convinced Madison is a stand-in for Lynch, consider the location of the Madison residence. It's David Lynch's actual house. It gets uh, even a little bit more personal than that. One thing that's also crazy about this David Lynch's house was designed by Lloyd Wright. It's known as the Beverly Johnson home. Lloyd Wright's son, Eric Wright, supervised construction and added a pool some 26 years later. Dates vary on when the house was completed. It was sometime between 1963 and 66, so the pool would have been added around the late 1980s or the early 90s. And it's likely Lynch owned the house by then, which is fascinating in its own light, which we'll be getting into in a second here. So we've been talking about George Dell as the Black Dahlia murderer in this series. He's accused of murdering Elizabeth Short at the Soden House, another property that Lloyd Wright designed. Not only does Frank Madison murder his wife in the Beverly Johnson house, but he literally cuts her in half I love the Dahlia. And he may even have carved a Glasgow smile on her face. I can't tell for certain, but it does look like there's some kind of facial mutilation there. But there are other appearances of the Glasgow smile throughout the film as well. Like, can you give us some of them? Yeah, there's a pretty prominent one toward the end when Pete Dayton is witnessing the snuff film with his version of Renee Madison. He asks to go use the restroom, and when he goes upstairs, he sees her having sex with, with, I think it's Marilyn Manson, and his face goes like completely white, and you can only see it for like, I want to say one or two seconds, but there's like a full Glasgow smile, and his face is, or his mouth is bleeding at that point. So I think that was after he got punched by Robert Lodge, his character. That was kind of the most prominent one I I noticed. Also, too, Clay, the other thing, too, I wanted to get into with you briefly is the location of the house. We had originally thought that Lynch had actually used his own address in the movie, uh, the Hollis one, uh, but that was not the actual address. But it is interesting about where she gives the location of it. Uh, do you want to go over that right quick for us since, uh, you know, you, you've lived in L.A. for a little bit, so... Yeah, it's really interesting. So she gives the location of the house 7035 Hollis, and she says near the observatory. So you're meant to believe that it's under Griffith Park in the Los Feliz Hills, or nobody calls it Los Feliz Hills, in the hills of Los Feliz. And you're made to believe that it's a stone's throw away from Griffith Park. Now, what's interesting is this, the name Hollis. That reminds one of Hollis Mulray from Chinatown. And what's really interesting is that the actual address is 7035 Sonalda Road. And it's located just above the Hollywood Bowl. And if you put Sonalda into a Spanish to English translation, Sonalda means signal. So I think. If we may extrapolate a bit, I think what David Lynch is trying to tell you is that 
there's a reason why he used his house and used the address of Hollis. I think what he's trying to tell you is that it's signal, not noise. Like this is a serious film with a serious message. And this location means something. It's not just an arbitrary, he's not just arbitrarily choosing his house. That's kind of something that I would take from that. And that's pretty much all I have to say about that. But I do think it's fascinating that his house was designed by Wright and it's used in the film. And it's yet a further connection to the, the Dahlia murder, among many others in this film. Yeah. And I mean, another thing too about the Hollis uh, reference, I mean, if it is to Hollis Mulray, which I suspect you're right on. Um, Again, Hollis Mulray is one of the uh, characters from the Chinatown film. He was based on the real life figure of William Maholland, who you know, the famous Maholland Drive is named after. So again, I mean, obviously Lynch called the next movie in the LA trilogy, Maholland Drive. I think he's definitely alluding to this, but I mean, also in the case of the Hollis Mulray character in Chinatown, his murder is essentially kind of the linchpin to the movie. And how does Hollis Mulray die? Well, he, he drowns. And this is really uh, interesting. This was just recently pointed out to me by J.J. Vance in the show I did with him on the Smiley Face Killers. But Hollis Mulray's murder um, actually bears striking similarities to a lot of the theories about the smiley face killers, namely that they drown their victims in isolated areas, possibly pools and private residences or things of that nature. And then the bodies are taken and put in bodies of uh, you know, like rivers and things like that, uh, which is essentially what happens in Chinatown. Hollis Mulray is uh, drowned in a Japanese style pool in his, I think it's backyard of his house and his body is put in the reservoir. So it's actually um, quite similar to many of the theories as to how the smiley face killers work. And it's also interesting to note that um, Frank Lloyd Wright was really big into Japanese water gardens. In fact, Talisian, uh, where his mistress and her two children were murdered, has quite a few of them. Uh, in fact, they actually surround um, the residential area of the house. And they use water from the Wisconsin River, which has been linked to a victim or two of the smiley face uh, killings, if I'm not mistaken. Another uh, interesting thing about why the name Hollis was used for a house that was designed by a member of the Wright family, which, you know, it's probably just really a coincidence, I guess. Okay, so um, let's get back to this Andy character and this Mr. Eddie character. The Andy character is, to my mind, meant to be a stand-in for George Adele. Not only does the character look a lot like the L.A. doctor, but he performs a function similar to some of Hotel's suspected activities, namely procuring girls for L.A. VIPs and possibly darker things involving film and art. And if that's not enough, Andy's played by Michael Massey. The listener will recall that this is the actor responsible for firing the shot that killed Brandon Lee. And he is in Lost Highway playing a character who is made up to look like George Adele. And then there's Loge's Mr. Eddie, an archetypical gangster character if ever there was one. I suspect Mr. Eddie slash Dick Laurent was modeled upon Mickey Cohen, the one-time Don of L.A. 
George Hodel appears to have had dealings with Cohen's crew over the years and may even have ran an abortion ring for the gangster at one point. The inclusion of these two characters, besides being a clear reference to the Dahlia murder, to illustrate the shadowy figures that lurk just beneath the backdrop of Tinseltown. Finally, there's the film's initial release date. It was actually released in France prior to the U.S. And what day was it released on? It was released on January 15th, 1997. January 15th is the day on which Elizabeth Short's body was found in 1947. She was probably murdered the evening before on the 14th, which is the Feast of the Ass, and the traditional climax in some countries of the Feast of Fools in Catholicism, hence the Glasgow smile. But her body was discovered on the 15th of January. Thus, Lost Highway was literally released on the 50th anniversary of the discovery of her body. As for the U.S. release, it was on February 21st. It's 221. If you've got a presence of 22 there, uh, which was Short's age when she died. So Lynch has acknowledged that the Black Dahlia murder was an influence on the film and Room to Dream is quasi-autobiography. In fact, he acknowledged consulting with a detective who worked the case. But he's clearly going with George Adele theory of the crime. As I've said many times before, it was George's son, former LAPD detective Steve Hudell, who compellingly linked his father to the murder. He started investigating this possibility not long after his father died in 1999 and published his findings initially in the Black Dahlia Avenger, which came out in 2003. Now, he had started circulating some of his findings privately before then, but I don't think much earlier than 02 or 01. I point out the timing of this because Lost Highway was released in 1997, a good two years before George Hodel even died. Lynch claims that he consulted with a former LAPD detective who worked the case. The most likely candidate would have been Detective Phineas Brown or his brother Thad, who eventually became the LAPD chief. Both were alive, I believe, up until the late 80s, and Phineas had made statements possibly implicating Hodel during the initial inquiry back in 47. Brown's old partner on the Dahlia case, Harry Henson, also expressed doubts at the time over how the LAPD handled the case. But he died in 1983. There were also detectives from the LAPD's influential gangster squad working the case as well, but they were probably the ones working the cover-up. Again, this is a really complicated subject, and I don't want us to get too sidetracked in this. But it is interesting in terms of Lost Highway and how the cops are depicted with this in mind. Anyway, elsewhere, the investigators in the L.A. District Attorney's Office were convinced of Adele's involvement. They had bugged his house, and they more or less have a recording of him acknowledging and murdering Elizabeth Short. But the implication is that Lynch consulted with a cop, not someone involved with the L.A.D.A. But again, the number of people still alive directly involved with the case would have been slim by the time Lynch had the cloud to track them down, i.e. probably the late 80s or so. My suspicion is that his actual source for this hotel stuff was not a cop at all, but rather the man who did renovations on the house Lynch bought and placed in Lost Highway, Eric Lloyd Wright. I suspect this was one of the reasons why the architecture of Frank Lloyd Wright and his family turns up in so many films linked to or inspired by the Dahlia murder. Beside Lynch's own work in Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive, you can see similar hints 
in a lot of curious films. Disney's 1991 movie, The Rocketeer, for instance, features its own Hoodell-like villain, played by, I think, Timothy Dalton. He lives in a house modeled upon Frank Lloyd Wright's Innes House. Pierce Patchett, played by the great David Stratton, and uh, the villainous turn in L.A. Confidential. Another Hoodell lookalike. Lives in a house designed by Richard Nutra, I believe, who worked for Wright at one point and was mentored by Rudolf Schindler, another Wright acolyte. The John Lauder house inhabited by the Hugh Hefner-inspired Jackie Treehorn character in The Big Lebowski was designed by a guy who apprenticed at Wright's fellowship and worked closely with the storied architect on several of his most famous projects before going solo. You guys starting to see a pattern here. Even in Wild at Heart, you've actually got a quasi-Hodel villain that's played by William Defoe, okay? Typically, suave villain, dark hair, pencil mustache, usually uh, involved in some type of pornography or prostitution, living in a home either designed by Wright or his family members, or his former collaborators. This is a trope that has appeared time and again in films since roughly the late 80s, and it was really big in the 90s. And this is really interesting in light of the fact that this was basically happening concurrently with George Hedell moving back to the United States after he had spent years living abroad in the Philippines, which is, you know, a location that's... um, witnessed more than a few intrigues in its day, to put it mildly. Uh, Adele had actually left the United States shortly after the Dahlia murder started becoming a major media sensation. Actually, I think it was a few years afterwards also, because he had the whole issue with him being implicated in raping his daughter. And, but anyway, by 1950, he had relocated to the Philippines, where he would stay, I think, until like 1989, 1990. And then suddenly, this trope starts Hearing in all of these movies, it's very interesting. A lot of the cops had died off by the time the 90s rolled around, but Eric Wright was still there in L.A. as he still is to this day as of this recording. So who knows uh, what was maybe being gossiped about when Hadell decided to come back to the United States. Eh? Let's get back to uh, Lost Highway. Easily the strangest character in this work is the one played by Robert Blake, Known only as the mystery man. To my mind, the key to understanding this character is given in his first appearance. It's not at the swanky party at Andy's where Blake tells Pullman's character he's in his house as they're standing there talking. To clarify that, he tells Pullman's character that he's in Pullman's house while they're at Andy's house at a party. And he pulls out a phone, he does the whole thing where he's basically talking to Blake in his own house while Blake is standing in front of him at this party. Great scene, a lot of levels. But anyway, this is not Blake's first appearance in the film. That occurred earlier, and it's an interesting sequence. Holman, first he sees the swishing red curtains. He attempts to have sex with Renee. I'm not exactly sure if he goes impotent or climaxes prematurely, but it does not end well. And this is the first time, too, incidentally, the song of the siren appears. He starts to while she looks with a kind of a look of contempt. Later, he goes to sleep, starts to have a nightmare, and then the Blake character appears in his bed instead of Renee, and he's wearing a wig that looks exactly like Patricia Arquette's character. 
And again, remember the whole thing with Elizabeth Fraser being a channel for the muses, a vessel to be inhabited. Song of the Siren is playing in the background subtly at the beginning of this sequence, along with the Twin Peaks-esque red curtains. This leads me to believe that the Blake character is some type of demonic being, probably a succubus who has targeted the Pullman character. In a lot of ways, this relationship is similar to the one in Twin Peaks between Bob and Leland Palmer. Leland, due to his incestuous desire for his daughter, opens himself up to possession by Bob. I think something similar is happening in Lost Highway with the suspicions Fred Madison harbors that his wife is cheating on him, or worse, we'll get to here in a moment, open him up to sinister forces. It's also interesting to note the red curtains as I've noticed before, they're frequently used in this film. And this really makes me think that Lost Highway is set in the same universe as Twin Peaks. And I think Lynch actually signals this as well in the third season of Twin Peaks. One of the interesting things, one of the most iconic images from Lost Highway is, of course, the reoccurring footage of the dark highway at night that was filmed on a steady cam on the dashboard of a car. Just this sort of desolate, you know, two-lane road, blacktop in the middle of nowhere. And Lynch revived that sequence in season three the Twin Peaks at a few points, specifically in relation to the evil Cooper, the doppelganger Cooper. So I very much think that Lost Highway and probably the entire L.A. trilogy is meant to be taken as a part of the Twin Peaks universe. Like, while we're on the subject of the mystery man, uh, you had an interesting take on his encounter with the Fred Madison character at the party. Can you break that down for us? Yeah, I think that um, there's a couple things. Um, number one, I'll start by talking about who I think the mystery man is referencing, and that's who I call this character, the man who lives inside Mulholland. And where I get that term from is <clears throat> there's a famous interview somebody did with Jordan Maxwell. And look, I, I believe me, I understand that Jordan Maxwell, there's a checkered understanding of him given his commitment to sovereign citizen stuff and his maritime admiralty understanding of the law and its impracticability. I totally get that. But this interview, he revealed something very interesting. He said he was speaking to a Teamsters union driver who used to drive celebrities to and from set and also around town. And he had Warren Beatty and some other famous actor in the back of his uh, vehicle, or he was taking them to a party. And on the way there, they were asking the driver, who do you think the richest man in the world is? And he goes, I don't know, David Rockefeller. And they started laughing. And then then they said, oh, come on, who, who do you think? And then he goes, I don't know, one of the Rothschilds. And they started laughing again. And Warren Beatty says something like, well, you're about to find out. And they roll up to this area where there looks to be an end of the road and it's off Mulholland somewhere. I think I've narrowed it down to a few locations based on my research. But the road stopped and all of a sudden the mountain itself seemed to open up there was like a secret doorway or i guess garage door but like much more industrial and they the driver drove inside this kind of long tunnel and they got out and went to this house that was completely buried 
in one of the hills off Mulholland Drive. And I wonder if that guy, whoever lives there, is one of those from one of those elite Swiss families whose name we're not supposed to know. Someone like a Klaus Schwab, but probably much higher up. And that story really creeped me out. And especially because there was a lot of sacrifices that were supposed to take place by Coldwater Mulholland, which is one of the areas where I think this house is. So I think that Robert Blake's character is referencing that that person, whoever that is. And, you know, that person has otherworldly control over Hollywood and probably governmental affairs, banking, whatever else, at least in theory. I wouldn't be surprised if that person were kind of in tune with demonic forces in a way that other people in the world are not. So, you know, there's probably a person of high magic who can probably manifest certain things uh, without trying to get too literal, because I know there's a lot of metaphors that David Lynch is trying to communicate with that character. I think that that character is representative of that. What's really interesting about that character is in Mulholland Drive, you have the cowboy character who I think is representing the same person. And they both do not have eyelashes and they do not have eyebrows, which show, is his way of trying to communicate it. These are kind of like whoever this entity or person is, is kind of is otherworldly creepy. And what's really interesting in Lost Highway is Robert Blake's, the mystery man's character's use of technology. He seems to be spying on bill pullman's character on on bill madison and also you see what looks to be a cell phone with video toward the end when he confronts and kills him again and it's just very weird that they're revealing technology in there that that seems state level and that of course draws me to lookout mountain which was the air force base at the top of the hollywood hills I have to believe that if this person exists, that there's some kind of tunnel system that goes from his house to the Lookout Mountain facility, which was used to make films. That's all they say. They don't say what kind of films. They don't say anything else. And one can only imagine what kind of films were made at that facility, um, especially during the MK Ultra era when it was in prime operation. So I think that there is loose references to Lookout Mountain as well uh, through these snuff films that they're making. But yeah, that's just kind of my take on this character. And it's who I, again, call the man who lives inside Mulholland. And that character freaks me out very much. <laughs> and, you know, again, I know some of you might think some of the stuff Clay's talking about here is outlandish. Well, we're going to break down the possibility of the um, the underground stuff more so when we get into Under the Silver Lake. But, I mean, one thing that I will point out about this sequence that I only recently became aware of in terms of the suggestion that it went to some kind of like behavioral modification program or some kind of reference to this type of stuff that was being done, the sequence in Lost Highway is actually a rather pointed tribute and possibly hint at a uh, certain Alfred Hitchcock movie called Marnie. It's not one of his more well-known ones, but it's actually a brilliant movie. Uh, it stars Sean Connery and E. Harden, I think her name was this, but I'm forgetting her name now. She was the last of Hitchcock's really big blondes, and Hitchcock is really important to all of this, by the way. 
Uh, obviously, Lynch was a huge Hitchcock fan, and are a lot of the other directors. There's tons of Hitchcock references in Under the Silver Lake. In the case of Marnie, the female protagonist that the movie is named after was the victim of sexual abuse as a very small child. Her mother was a prostitute, and one of the Johns tried to rape Marnie uh, when she was probably around five or something to that effect, uh, which resulted in the John being murdered by Marnie after the mother had tried to separate them. Later, Marty, after encounters with the unnamed doctors, becomes a master thief as an adult woman. At one point, she goes to work for a company run by Connery and is going to try and uh, rob him. And yet somehow, Mr. James Bond realizes almost immediately what she is and starts doing a lot of elaborate Freudian psychoanalysis and so forth on her. But anyway, as this pertains to Lost Highway and the famous Robert Blake scene, at one point, Marnie and Connery are at a very swank upscale party, and Marnie is confronted by one of her former bosses from a place that she had robbed. And the first thing that the ex-boss says to Marnie is, we've met before, haven't we? in the same exact fashion that the Robert Blake character does. And it leads to a similar awkward sequence at the same kind of upscale party. Uh, so I have to believe, given that Lynch is obviously a big fan of Hitchcock, he had to have been aware of the similarities. The scene that he was filming bore with this specific scene with Marnie, which is a pretty pivotal scene in the film, uh, by the way. Also, too, interestingly enough, red is used quite heavily in Marnie as well to uh, signal various things, much as it is in Lost Highway. So, you know, again, I can't help but feel that Lynch is doing this in a very pointed way. And as such, given the material that is presented in Lost Highway in a film like Marnie, you know, we have to consider some more incredible possibilities. So... Let's get to the Belgezar Getty character here. His name is interesting as well. Like Pullman, he has a bland first name intersected with the last name referring to a city. Pullman's case, it's Madison, Wisconsin. For Getty, it appears to be Dayton, Ohio. So there's a lot of interesting things about Dayton. Uh, the first schism in the Church of Satan occurred in Dayton when the Stygian Grotto broke away from the Mother Church after members were implicated in drug trafficking and prostitution. It's also the home of the legendary Red Patterson Air Force Base, which is located just outside of Dayton. Of course, it weighs heavily in ufology. It was named uh, also after the Wright brothers who invented flight. As far as I can tell, there is no family connection between the Wright brothers and the family of Frank Lloyd Wright. But there's the fact that both cities are associated with famous Wright families. And finally, both Madison and Dayton are named after members of the Society of Cincinnati, which may have been one of the Ur groups that later led to the birth of groups like Skull and Bones, the Bohemian Club, the Tuna Club of Avalon, and all these other wonderful creations. Because you see certain families like the Huntingtons appearing in all of these different societies over the years for centuries. Again, I, I really wish I was making this stuff up. I didn't want to believe this kind of crap. But after seeing how the Huntington family shows up in the Society of Cincinnati, I, I mean, everything from just like the founding of Mormonism onward, it's just, 
it's inescapable. It really is. I hate to say that. I truly do. Clay, uh, do you have any thoughts on the name of the Getty character? I think that you make an interesting point about Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and he certainly does look like the perfect MK Ultra candidate, and the fact that he's a Getty in the role even further adds speculation to that, especially in light of Andrew Getty's film, The Evil Within, which is an entire other episode and something we're going to explore in our the documentary that we're making. But yeah, I also think there's serial killers, prominent serial killers that came out of Dayton. There's the famous Dayton Strangler. I mean, well, the reason I bring up serial killers, though, is because of the fact that, you know, you have Bill Madison as Bill Pullman in prison, and all of a sudden he changed personages with Pete Dayton. And... It really makes you wonder if that was maybe a reference to John Wayne Gacy being baptized, or what was it? Uh, Jeffrey uh, Dahmer. Jeffrey Dahmer being baptized in prison on the day that John Wayne Gacy died. And uh, the prison itself is really interesting. It almost seems like a prison of souls in a way, eerily similar to what Zeph Daniels was talking about in that Art Bell episode and just real quick for those of you who may not have heard our previous episodes f daniels was a writer of the movie society so there's a lot of interesting things at play with pete dayton's character um i would say he just jumps out to me as like an mk ultra character somebody who's under some kind of spell and the serial killer reference is definitely there yeah at a base level though just kind of an mk ultra candidate Peter Dayton becomes our central focus after he metamorphs uh, from the uh, Fred Madison character-wise in Death Row. So almost immediately after this, he's released from prison and he's thrown into just an almost comical film noir scenario. He works indirectly for a notorious L.A. gangster and is drawn into an affair with his mole. Fittingly, it's a woman named Alice, who's also played by Patricia Arquette, though in this case she's blonde, where she had been a brunette before. Obviously, you know, again, another big Alfred Hitchcock thing. The blonde brunette motif is very fascinating in its own right. I mean, it's used in a lot of Lynch's films and a lot of other works related to the Albacore series. Obviously, as I said before, Hitchcock is legendary for doing it. It was big in Vertigo, for instance, and several other filmmakers have also gone out their way to play homage to it. Lynch does it, as I said, but another guy who frequently employs it is Brian De Palma who we also spoke of in the last installment because he is the individual who directed the adaptation of James Elroy's Black Dahlia novel. This is also a very important theme. So we'll probably get into more with that in uh, Mulholland Drive where it's front and center, the whole blonde brunette thing. Clay, you had some interesting reactions to the Peter Dayton character's friends as well. Do you want to get into those with us? Yeah, well, they look eerily like the Lost Boys. And again, on the MK Ultra note, The Lost Boys, you know, starring Corey Haim and Corey Feldman and Kiefer Sutherland was the lead. I mean, I know the movie's about vampires, but I also think it's about something else. 
And the comparison between the way they looked and the Lost Boys, I mean, it was almost like they were pulled from the movie into Lost Highway. And I think it's just showing that Pete and his friends were involved in something that was way bigger than what they knew or could tell. Like, I mean, I think that's evidence in Pete working at Arnie's shop. Like, you get the impression, like, he's working as a mechanic, but he's also doing a lot of other stuff on the side. And he's always seems really nervous when he's in there. It just makes me think that him and his friends were involved in something bigger, something maybe involving sex trafficking or, you know, with Hollywood elites. Maybe they were all MK Ultra candidates themselves as well. But I, I certainly don't think that the Lost Boys reference was done by accident or just to try and be hip to the youth or something like that. Like it was done on purpose. And I think that it was meant to show that they were part of some MK Ultra substructure of Hollywood and Los Angeles itself. Well, it's a weird thing because, I mean, the, the movie definitely really went out of its way to appear really chick and hip and so forth. I mean, we already got into the soundtrack. I mean, how it mm -hmm. did, you know, go gold and what have you. But his friends really do look like they stepped out of some kind of 80s movie. And it's interesting, too, because, I mean, two of the actors in the circle were uh, Gianovo Risby and Natasha Gregory Wagner, both of whom were at the time considered up and coming, you know, starlets. I mean, obviously, it didn't work out for them were just um, you know movie stars but at the time you know i mean they had a lot of buzz about their career and they just sort of especially john of risby i think he's only in it for like that this scene or like maybe one or two scenes or something and natasha gregory wagner just basically shows up and i think has sex with pete like once or twice or something and that's about the extent of her character they're just they're really thankless, you know, generic roles that you could have yeah. got almost anyone to play. It seems like he went out of his way to get rising stars for part. So that's mm -hmm. another interesting aspect about that. All right, Clay. So one of the most well-known scenes in this film is where um, Mr. Eddie pistol whips some douchebag for tailgating him. Can you go over that, your thoughts on that scene with us as well as the location it's taking place at in L.A.? Uh, sure. Yeah, I think that scene is interesting in that it's another way David Lynch masks his reveal of the mafia influence in Hollywood with humor. And when I say humor, it's not funny watching a guy being pistol whipped, but there's something funny about a mafia character. Literally, you see the speedometer go to 140 miles an hour in Robert Loggia's car after the guy tailgates him and he goes and just bashes into him and skids him out of Mulholland and then goes over there and starts pistol whipping a guy for tailgating him and being an asshole, which is what a lot of people do in LA. I found that another one of David Lynch's humorous reveals on the mafia character. And you can add the other examples I brought up in uh, Mulholland Drive. But at the same time, it's weirdly serious for Pete's character because he's witnessing the violence, the abject violence of these, these guys. And it's another example of showing how Pete's involved in a world that he doesn't really understand. He's riding with these mafia guys that 
seem like they're his best friends, but they could turn on him and kill him in a moment's notice. And what's also interesting about this scene is I'm I, I'm pretty sure I'm right about this. I haven't been able to fully prove it yet, but I think that where Robert Lodge's character pistol whips this guy is the exact location of where the car crash takes place that starts Mulholland Drive. And that's an interesting thread because if that's the case, then it's like shows this movie like physically transferring to Mulholland Drive in the form of the pistol whipping and the car crash there. I mean, the minor car crash here to Mulholland Drive. So those are kind of my observations uh, on that scene. Well, it's also taking place, too, in that whole area around Griffin Park that you were just talking about, too, right? The, you know, sort of region we've been talking about, like with Edendale and some of these other spots. Like, uh, Well, this this spot would be more on Mulholland. Uh, okay. uh, yeah, it would be actually where it's eerily close to is Lookout Mountain, where this takes place. Oh, okay, yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, yeah, so right by where Nicholson and those guys live and stuff, so... Okay. Another interesting thing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, see, and that's that also kind of ties in. Obviously, Nicholson was the star of Chinatown. I mean, I did a lot with Nicholson on the first of the Albuquerque shows and the Chinatown one, but just sort of throw this in, Nicholson and Marlon Brando were neighbors for many, many years there in that like stretch off of Mulholland. And Nicholson was actually the one who bought uh, Brando's property after he died. Uh, He demolished Brando's house, actually. And but still owns the uh, the land there. So, yeah, these guys all lived in that same street there, along with Warren Beatty, who Clay had just mentioned earlier. So, again, this was all, you know, really incestuous. The Peter Dayton character starts having disturbing dreams, just like the earlier Fred Madison character. But in Dayton's case, he frequently heads to a hotel room, getting Alice engaged in some provocative activity. Activities. There are some interesting use of numbers in the film, and one of the most notable is Peter's hotel room in this sequence. It is 26. 26 is the numbers in the basic Latin alphabet, and the English one Z is the 26 number. During this era, 26 was often the number of television shows in a given season on American TV, i.e. the 1990s, that is to say. But I think most relevant here, in a conventional deck of playing cards, there are 52, with 26 being red and 26 being black. I think the latter is probably the most likely reference for 26. 52 later turns up in a license plate in a car driven by Arquette's character. It's either AYS 52 or Ace 52. This seems to play in with the card theme with Pullman's character, the black, or Getty's the red, or possibly vice versa. There's also 52 weeks in a year, obviously, so there's probably a factor of that as well. You could also point to the Arthurian uh, cycle with the legends with Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. I know in Robert Graves' interpretation of that, at least, and Graves is, you know, always very controversial, but he sort of saw Gawain and uh, the Green Knight as personifications, the two different solstices, with one ruling over six months of the year and the other ruling over the other six months of the year. So I suppose, in a sense, you can kind of see that with the Madison and Dayton characters as well. But another interesting thing about the number 26 is that it relates to a song. This is taken from a fascinating book called Grand Ventures, The Banning Family and the Shaping of Southern California by Tom Sitton. 
And then he writes, Santa Catalina is one of the eight islands, a group known as the Channel Islands, the dot, the coastal waters of California between Santa Barbara and San Diego. Santa Catalina lies about 22 miles from the closest point on the mainland and is certainly 26 miles across the sea, the distance given of a popular song from the 1950s from several places along the California coast. And again, David Lynch is a big fan of music from the 1950s. And if you've seen Blue Velvet, you know there's a lot of vintage uh, 50s music used in that, and he would certainly try to recreate that sound in Twin Peaks and a lot of his other works. 26 Miles from the Mainland was a hit song in that era. I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility Lynch was familiar with it. And I will again remind you guys that he cast Natalie Wood's daughter, same woman who drowned off the coast of the Santa Catalina Islands, in this movie. So, so much for 26. Elsewhere, the number 47 appears in one noteworthy instance of Bill Pullman's prison outfit. I point this out because 46 is used heavily in uh, Inland Empire as well. Specifically, Room 47 plays a significant role in Inland, not unlike how Room 26 does in Highway. Uh, there's an obvious Discordian link to 47, divided by 2, and you're left with 23.5. Those are arguably the two most important numbers in Discordianism. But thanks to Pomona College, 47 has its own air of the 23 enigma as well. Students at that school during the mid-1960s made an attempt to uh, see if 47 appears more in nature than it statistically should. This claim remains highly controversial, but it's been spread around throughout the internet and has actually gained a lot of traction in recent years. Also, interesting note, a lot of the Bannon family members uh, who had helped set up the Santa Catalina Islands uh, attended Pnoma College. So uh, there's kind of that strange family connection there, too. Another interesting thing about 47 is, is the atomic number for silver. But finally, there's also the possibility of reference to the year 1947. That was the year that Dahlia was murdered on, and a lot of other stuff occurred during it. Crowley's death, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the beginning of the modern UFO era, etc., etc. Uh, you got anything to add on that, Clay? Um... If I may add one thing, and I don't know that Lynch would have even known this at the time, but it's another interesting reference to 47. They say that 19.47 is a really important number in physics uh, that has to deal with anti-gravity or something of that nature, zero-point energy. So I don't know that uh, Lynch would have known that, but it's it's... It's one thing, it's one reason why people say the Roswell UFO crash happened in 1947 is like a tip off to us for that number. So anyway, just a kind of bit of information, but I think you covered the numerology superbly, my friend. I have nothing to add. Thank you, sir. All right. So as befitting any classic film, a war, the Femme Fatale must draw the dim-witted lead into a scheme to alleviate their financial difficulties. This always involves some kind of crime, and Lost Highway is no different. Mr. Eddie will kill Peter and Alice if he finds out about their affair. Sue, they need money to leave L.A. and start over. And Alice knows just how to get it. There's a rich guy she used to work for, a partner of Mr. Eddie's who usually has a lot of valuables around his house. 
Alice arranges a meeting and they hatch a plan to rob this guy. Only the fence turns out to be Andy, Renee's friend from the first half of the film. The one she had an ill-defined relationship with. This leads to a lot of dark recall for Peter. It's triggered both by the porn playing on the movie projector when he comes into Andy's house, as well as certain pictures he sees around this house. Clay, can you tell us a bit about those pictures, sir? You're referring to the pictures of the tuna fish, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so really, it's really weird displayed next to other photos in the house and interspliced with the snuff films that they're seeing with Marilyn Manson of all people, which is a story in and of itself. There's an eerie photo of two men standing next to a giant yellowfin tuna. And I certainly think that's a reference to the tuna club. And I would discount it as being purely coincidental were it not for the way that we see Mr. Eddie dead at the end of the movie. If you look at Mr. Eddie, his hands are bent upward like the tail of a tuna and there's blood on the side where the scaly skin of the fish would be. So it's it's like he's killed in a ritualistic nature in reference to the tuna club. And when I saw that about Mr. Eddie, I discounted it, you know, and I didn't catch it until I watched the film again. But yeah, M- Mr. Eddie is ritually murdered with ritualistic homage to the uh, tuna club. So I found that very interesting. What's also interesting, too, that picture is sitting right next to the one that's, you know, really kind of pivotal to the plot. It's the one where I think initially when Peter looks at it, he sees Mr. Eddie and Andy in the photograph with both Renee and Alice. But I think yes, yes, yes. When Fred looks at it, it's just Renee. Alice doesn't appear in uh, the photo frame, which we'll get to in a second. That particular photograph is really pivotal to uh, the plot of the movie and the uh, tuna picture that Clay's talking about is like sitting right next to it. I think that's kind of another reason why you can draw significance from it. I mean, the fact that Lynch sort of chose that particular image to go next to this other image that's so crucial to the plot point, I think is uh, very significant as well. Peter predictably kills Andy. He and Alice flee into the desert. The mystery man reappears and things get truly weird. Not that they've been pretty freaking weird up to that point. And this is even before Peter transforms back into Fred Madison. Uh, but that is, again, a striking scene. It occurs after uh, Peter and the Alice version of Patricia Arquette as uh, her Alice incarnation are having sex before the headlights of a car. And again, the song of the siren plays. And again, shades of the first time that the Fred Madison character killed Renee back at the beginning of the movie that also propped up again used the song when they were uh, having a sexual encounter that um, does not necessarily end very well for the Dayton slash uh, Madison character. Of course, at the end of this, Peter transforms back into Madison and Arquette informs him that that he will never have her as she walks away. All right, Clay, let's start getting philosophical here so first off is the second arquette character alice real 
My sense is no. In fact, I think she's the mystery man, the Robert Blake character. What's your take on that? I think you're right in that. At the very least, she's like an altar of Renee. But yeah, she doesn't seem to be real at all. And she seems to behave completely differently. I think you're well within on the right track to say that she could indeed be the mystery man. Uh, clearly, that character can morph into other people, be in two places at once. So I, I definitely think that it could be Robert Blake. Absolutely. So what is the movie about? The million-dollar question that has perplexed everyone since the first time they saw Lost Highway. My belief is that the Fred Madison character becomes aware that not only is his wife potentially having an affair that she had previously worked in porn, but that specifically she had made a snuff film. We see this at the end in an especially horrific sequence, as Clay has alluded to, involving Marilyn Manson and Twiggy Ramirez. Living with this absolutely shatters Madison and opens him up to possession. Into the mystery man. This may even be the same demonic presence that guides all of the figures behind the snow. Again, you sort of see the Robert Blake character constantly associated with uh, Mr. Eddie and uh, Andy. In a sense, the mystery man slash Alice can be seen as the movie's topa. Once it gets its claws into Fred, it drives him on a path of destruction that results in him creating his own snuff film in which he kills his wife in a highly ritualistic fashion. This is essentially the same scenario played out in Twin Peaks in regards to Leland Palmer, though it was his daughter rather than his wife who was the victim. And like Leland and Bob, the Topa eats away at Fred until he commits suicide or is possibly murdered in prison. When Leland's case is when he's in police custody. But um couldn't help be struck by how I mean there's you know, there's kind of the physical degradation that they both go through in the process leading up to their demise. From there, it briefly seems like Madison slash Dayton has gone on to a better place. He's become a younger, more attractive man. He's already got a hot girlfriend even before Alice shows up. He's getting laid and apparently isn't impotent or incompetent as Madison is. He's thrown into a scenario where he gets to get back at the people who lured Renee in the snuff even. Basically, he's some badass hero in a uh, classic noir scenario an la one straight out of raymond chandler or something like that only he's not a private detective but it's all an illusion once he realizes that not only is he transformed back into red menace but he's basically forced to live through the whole horror show all over again the movie essentially begins where it ends or ends where it begins with madison buzzing his own house and informing himself that dick laron is dead who was again murdered in a highly ritualistic fashion as the mystery man was filming it. This is probably the same thing that played out in Twin Peaks Season 3. I firmly believe the last scene of Laura Palmer whispering in Cooper's end, and that look of horror on his face, is brought about by her telling him that he never left the Black Lodge. Here, Madison seems to have been placed in a perpetual loop, 
seems to play out over and over again. And I think Lynch is even visually hinting at that with the the highway sequence, because that's what opens the movie. And I think that's essentially what closes it as well. I think that's almost a visual cue for the loop triggering again and the uh, kind of the hell that he has to relive it all over and over. Clay, how do you read this? Yeah, it's really interesting. You see these loops in both Mulholland Drive and in Lost Highway. And, you know, one thing I think Lynch does and he realizes is the power of film as a ritual. I do believe that all films, in, whether they're good or bad, you know, I'm not saying every film is a satanic ritual or some ludicrous kind of thing like that. But what I'm saying is that every film is a ritual. You are capturing a dream in a moment in time and a vision, and you're communicating that vision. And that in and of itself is a form of ritual. It's a form of scrying. It's a form of creating reality. And one thing I think what Lynch does is he creates fractal moments of consciousness that exist on their own continuously in a film. Most films go from point A to point D, point Z, wherever they end, and they end. But David Lynch's films never end. They're in perpetual motion. The storylines are always going. They're never stopping. And what's really interesting is just because you stop watching the film doesn't mean it's not still going. Forgive how abstract that sounds, but I believe that's what he's going for. And I think he does that for a couple reasons. Number one, I think he thinks of time differently. I think he thinks in fractal time that everything is always happening at once. Secondly, I think that he's showing reincarnation in a way. These characters seem to be reincarnated. Whether they're reincarnated through a dream loop or not, they're still reincarnated in the story. And that's important to keep in mind. And thirdly, I think he's showing that in the film itself, there are supernatural elements that are representative of real-life supernatural occurrences. When he's showing snuff films in his, in his films, he's referencing that whole universe, and his characters are referencing that, and they're drawing attention to the energy of those films and those spiritual practices. So when you are seeing those stories play out, they're part of those rituals in Hollywood in that they're bringing them to life through these films. That's part of the ritual he's going for, too, is to show the permanence of film. Most people think of films as something you watch for two hours. He doesn't. He thinks of a film as something you watch over and over and over again. And that's, that is the ritual of film imprinting an idea a theme a message on an audience throughout the years from initial film release to dvd to netflix to amazon to generating conversations about that film to studies of that film books on that film you know it, it takes on its own life and he realizes that and i think one of the most striking things about that realization from his point of view is that he doesn't allow chapters, or at least on Mulholland Drive, he didn't. I can't state for all of his other films, he may have been forced to by contract, so I can't state that for sure. But he adamantly resisted having DVD chapters on his films, and I, I really applaud him for that. And I think it speaks to his idea of film as permanence and film as ritual. 
Out of curiosity, Clay, I mean, how much do you think possibly TM and effective altruism played into some of the uh, influence on how he approaches film? Uh, yeah, I think they definitely inform his filmmaking as far as his idea of film transcending everyday life and most importantly, space time. I think that they inform his filmmaking, but you know, what's what's really weird on those two subjects is that both TM and effective altruism seem to be what they are outside of David Lynch seem to be giant money-making schemes and money laundering schemes. So um, <laughs> it's an interesting question as far as from a, an esoteric standpoint, I get how it influences his film, but from a standpoint of what effective altruism and TM seem to be as organizations, it's a really interesting dichotomy to say the least, given the controversy that they're embroiled in, especially now that EA is embroiled with FTX too. I guess an interesting question I'd ask you is how would you separate those from his vision? Because I don't know, man, from what you point out, him and TM seem to be quite interlinked. I will leave it at that. Yeah, well, I mean, I'll get to that in a second. But yeah, I mean, it's definitely a valid point. And I mean, I think a lot of it just sort of plays into the fanaticism. I mean, certainly, I think of for a fair amount of the people tied in with it is with, you know, a lot of these, these movements and these, uh, you know, metaphysical uh, organizations and what have you, it's just a money making scheme. But there are the, you know, the hardcore faction, I mean, who really do have, I mean, a truly spiritual agenda behind it. And I mean, I do think for better or worse, uh, Lynch probably falls into the latter category. I mean, certainly. Oh, I think so too. Yeah. yeah. Well, then, okay. So to wrap up, let's get into the pink elephant in the corner. This is, again, obviously an extremely personal movie for David Lynch for reasons already outlined. The Fred Manson character is in many ways a stand in for Lynch. Reoccurring motif in many of the Albuquerque films were hints at a network involving actresses engaged in both prostitution and potentially also snuff films. And frequently it's hinted that these aren't mere killings, but ritual murders. I think this is one of the reasons why the Dahlia has alluded to time and again. This was one of Hollywood's most significant ritual murders, and with all the Hollywood people lurking in the background, there is a distinct possibility that it may have been filmed. And if it was, it surely wasn't the first or the last time such a thing has happened in the L.A. area. This is sort of interesting in terms of um, David Lynch's wife prior to uh, Mary Sweeney. This was uh, Isabella Rossellini, of course, starred in Blue Velvet, but she was the daughter of Ingrid Bergman, who had starred in a lot of Hitchcock's movies as well, which Lynch was really obsessed with, as we had noted before. So, and there's another like kind of weird connection with that. Clay, what's your take on all this? Is Lynch trying to reveal something or is he acknowledging he's part of it or is it some combination of that? I'll tell you what I hope and pray to be true, that he's not pulling a Roman Polanski on us, that he is trying to reveal through coded messages what's going on in Hollywood through these two movies and Inland Empire as well. That's my hope. I'll, I'll, I'll start with that. Operating from that standpoint, I think he makes movies for a series of people like artists watch it for the surrealist aspects of it 
college age kids and others might watch it as like a trippy film to get stoned and try to figure out the clues. But then he also made this movie for adepts, you know, he made this for people. Um, and I only say this in the magical term, people not of profane minds. And I think that's the category that you and I and your audience falls under. And if you watch it from that perspective, he's giving all kinds of clues as to what goes on. Like Hollywood's infiltrated by the mob. There's dark, mysterious characters that run this town that are above the mafia and that are involved in dark finance. Actresses are used for prostitution frequently. There are a plethora of snuff films that are made in Hollywood, more so than you would imagine. One of my favorite things that he does is, both in Mulholland that we didn't get to today and in Lost Highway, are what I call the mysterious shadow cops that he has in his films. You see like the detectives in Mulholland, like the McKnight's played by, uh, what's his name? Um... Anyway, you have oh, the, Robert Forrester. Robert yeah, Forrester. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you have um, those two cops who are the main cops, but there's like cops that are following the Diane Selwyn case. They almost seem to exist and not exist at the same time. They seem to be like very shadowy police type figures. But really, what they are, I think, is private security figures. And they appear in both films. They're very, very weird. They don't they don't seem to exist in our realm, but they do and they don't. But they're watching everything. And it seems he's also revealing there's some big time surveillance grid in Hollywood too. And I, I definitely think that's revealed through the mystery man and all the technology he uses and the fact that he's in both places at once. And I while I do think that's spiritual, I also think he's making a literal double entendre reference to there being a literal surveillance state structure on major celebrities and others to keep them in line. One real life example I'll give is Kanye West trainer, Harley Pasternak. I mean, you read through his list of trainees. It's like the MK Ultra playbook. Sadly, one of his clients was Brittany Murphy, who passed away tragically. And you just get the impression that that guy is a handler. And of course, he was in the Canadians version of the DOD running Cywar programs over there. So I think there's that. I think David Lynch is certainly revealing magic ritual, using numerology, using tarot card references, just to reveal the dark sorcery in Hollywood. And that's my hope. Now, the other side to it is he got into the TM movement to make money. He's helping shepherd the money laundering operation. And these films were Polanski films in that he was an insider doing Revelation of the Method to reveal this to allow them to continue their operation karmically. So I, I don't know. I, I, <laughs> I'm putting my blinders on here and going with the non-Polanski version that he's trying to leak truth through his films and television shows. Yeah, I mean, it is just unsettling when you kind of step back and, I mean, look at the trajectory of his career. I almost wonder if part of it was because he was confronted with this again, possibly with his marriage with Isabella Rosalini. You know, another thing that's sort of interesting to point out about her mother, uh, Ingrid Bergman, uh, you know, obviously she was a big star, but uh, 
besides uh, the fact that she was in two uh, rather noteworthy Hitchcock films, uh, Notorious and Spellbound. I believe it was Spellbound, too, that had the really striking surrealist sequence that was designed by Salvador Dali, which is interesting. George Adele was a big fan of Salvador Dali, obviously. But uh, beyond that, the Spellbound and Notorious, both uh, Hitchcock films that Ingrid Bergman starred in, were written by a guy called Ben Hetch, who again may have known Hodel socially, but had also written a novel, 1924, called Kingdom of Evil, that a young George Hodel was just absolutely obsessed with. He actually started a kind of proto-zine to hell the brilliance of Hetch's uh, Kingdom of Evil work and the uh, character in it. Top of that, too, uh, Hedge uh, frequently collaborated with the stepfather, the guy who raised uh, Julie Payne, who was Robert Town's wife. Town, of course, was the screenwriter of uh, Chinatown, and later his daughter, who I believe he had with Payne, showed up in uh, Mulholland Drive later. So, again, I, I just can't help but feel that Lynch was aware of these connections, of the possibility that a guy like Hodel knew Hedge. And again, you know, when you look at this whole thing as we've been unpacking here, somebody like Bella Rosalini, second generation actress from a very prominent family, some of the roles, especially that Lynch cast her in. Again, you know, it raises some unsettling possibilities. You go back to the Fred Madison character in Twin Peaks I and mean, a lot of the stuff that we've heard about, the TM movement, some of the figures possibly behind it, what they were involved in. You know, I mean, it does sort of raise some unsettling possibilities. I mean, if Lost Highway was a reflection of Lynch's own struggle to exist in that world, mm -hmm. you know, possibly, I mean, maybe the endless loop that, I mean, he was caught in. Obviously, his career went through also various cycles, rather extreme sort of turns of faith. He'd gone through a similar scenario with Elephant Man to Dune. I mean, obviously, he was... Well, Elephant Man wasn't a huge hit. I mean, it was a very prestigious film. I think it was the only time Lynch was nominated um, for Best Director, which he got when I think he was still in his 20s. Turns around, he makes Dune, uh, which is just universally panned. It was one of the biggest box office failures ever. Mm -hmm. uh, but but I mean, a good movie, though. Uh, yeah, it's, it's underrated. It definitely great. is. Yeah. Uh, but again, you know, not, you know, going beyond that, I mean, you know, again, his career revitalized, so can't help but feel, especially at that point when Lynch was in, I mean, it was like, again, you know, he had gone from the toast of the town with Twin Peaks, he was knocked on his ass after that kind of fell apart. It's almost, I could see for him, like he was in this sort of perpetual cycle, like the Madison character, and again, maybe it's a reflection of his struggle to deal with the shady side of Hollywood, that he's aware of this kind of stuff. And I mean, how do you accept uh -huh. this kind of world? And I go back to how much his life seems to have changed around 06. Uh, he divorces Sweeney. He really seems to go all in with the TN movement and yeah. and purposes, has really remade himself as a guru rather than a filmmaker. I don't think Lynch is cynical to be doing this for money. People around him may be doing it for money, but not necessarily Lynch. I do have to wonder if there is a certain fanaticism to this. And kind of brings me to a point here as we wrap up. Clay, you know, you just spoke so eloquently about filmmaking as ritual. Seems especially apt for Lost Highway. 
I mean, I have to ask, is this part of an ongoing ritual with Elizabeth Short? We have to consider the possibility that Mark Frost, the co-creator of Twin Peaks, uh, before he had done Twin Peaks, he wrote an excellent movie called The Believers, uh, starring Martin Sheen, which really eerily reshadows Adolfo Costanzo and his whole thing, The Butcher of Metamorphosis. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, there was even speculation that Constanzo had maybe knocked off some of the stuff from the believers, but apparently the script had been written by Frost, I believe, before the murders started. So, and here you have Lynch with Lost Highway, the pointed references throughout to the short murder, and then you have all this stuff that plays out with Robert Brake's personal life. Do you have any thoughts on this? Yes. So I do think that there's something so striking about the Elizabeth Short murder. And I mean that to these people, like this was a major ritual for them. I, I don't know necessarily what the purpose is. It literally could have been. I mean, it was right at the time when Hollywood was rising in prominence. It could have been to usher in Hollywood itself. It, it really could have. What you can't deny about that murder is that it is referenced so many times. And not only the murder, but the Glasgow smile, especially the Glasgow smile in the form of the character, the Joker. It can't just be some, quote unquote, some murder in Hollywood. And forgive that term. I don't mean any disrespect to Elizabeth Short when I say that. I'm just saying that in a town that thinks of murder as a way to sell films that this murder has prominence. There's something about that ritual, and I do think they filmed it. I agree with you 100%. And what I would maybe argue is that maybe some of these young filmmakers are shown the Elizabeth Short film as like a litmus test. You know, are you going to play ball with us? Are you going to be a part of the club? You're going to watch this film, and we're going to see how you react. And uh, I seriously wonder that. I mean, I think this film is looked at in a way that to, to these sick people who are involved in these rituals in Hollywood, I think that this film is looked at as Catholics might look to the Mother Mary. And I mean that seriously. I don't, I don't mean that to joke around. I, I, maybe that's too, too big of a comparison. Well, actually, um, it kind of reminds me of that, um, you know, that old joke about, the, you know, the president of the United States, like every time, you know, we elect a new president, they take him into a White House in this shadowy out of the way room. And it's a dark room with, uh, you know, a movie projection screen and an old school movie uh, projector in there. And there's a man sitting in one chair in a black suit. And in the other chair, there's a general sitting there with, you know, a bunch of stars on his chest and they tell the president to sit down and join them. And he sits down and they play the, the film for the president. He sees the JFK assassination, but from an angle that nobody's ever seen it before, yeah. but where he can exactly see who the killer is and mm. he watches the film. And then, you know, the lights, it stops and the lights come up and the general looks him in the eye and says, son, do you have any questions? Yeah, you know, I could I could definitely see something like that with Hollywood. And, and honestly, there's almost a hint of that with the Alice character. You know, when they have that flashback with the Robert Loge character, you know, she 
I guess it's the first time she meets him. She's ushered into that room and there's all those kind of goons standing around. They put the revolver in her head and she has to strip down and kind of like impress him, you know, to uh, mm. survive. But I mean, I almost wondered, you know, again, you see the intersections with the snuff film, if it's maybe something more like that, they're kind of brought in maybe when they're uh, starting to get into that, you know, the $20 million range. Yeah. Like you're saying, shown uh, the short film. How do you feel about that? Are you okay with this yeah all right, all right well then you can sign that contract yeah i mean uh, however this film is used there's no question the 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 killing of the black dolly uh the film of it there's no question that these people think it's it's sacred and holy and that that's what makes me sick about these people is that they're so different than us as far as how they view things that it's nearly in, incomprehensible for us normal good people to get in those shoes and, and figure out what they're thinking. I mean, I, I just don't understand. I just have a curious question for you. How did George Hodel's son turn out to be a normal cop? You would think he'd be raised in this world. Well, actually, he was mainly raised by his mother, um, ah. Adele. Yeah, yeah. He was fairly young in the 40s when a lot of this was playing out. And then Hodel, uh, like I said, left for the Philippines. Left for the Philippines. Oh, that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, he had already divorced his mother, even though they were still living together. And it was an open marriage with some other people. It was a very strange setup. But anyway, his mom at least came to her senses and more or less got the kids away from hotel after a certain point. So, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's, I would imagine how he turned out to be fairly normal. It's just a fascinating thing with the possibilities with this, with Elizabeth Short and the fact that, I mean, it is used over and over again in this almost kind of like meta ritualistic fashion. And I mean, I know that this sounds incredible, but you know, you have to go back to the surrealist movement uh, german expressionism which is closely related is also really important uh, but in the case of the surrealists they had this whole concept of the exquisite corpse which is actually with a cutoff or cutoff method that uh, william s burroughs popularized was like discordianism and all this other kind of stuff it was one of those kind of bases of like sampling if you will they, I mean, almost saw this as the human body as a means of exquisite corpse work of art. And uh, certainly if you look at a lot of surrealist art, um, there are often bodies, and especially female bodies, that are dismembered, that are in very strange places, that have been superimposed in different mm. ways. And this, you know, the original cutoff, and that was how Elizabeth Short's body was found. I kind of go back to this whole thing is not just a ritual, but a form of art. And I think that's another reason why this is one of the particular killings. I'm with a few others, like you know, the Jack the Ripper murders that have been used time and again in so many works of fiction, because I mean, there is an artistic sensibility as well as a ritualistic sensibility behind that that lends itself to fiction. Yeah. One thing that's really disturbing about this film is, you know, when Renee is murdered, you see her torso, and it's very similar to the way Jeffrey Dahmer displayed his victims. And I wonder if that was done on purpose as well. Again, there's another Dahmer reference, like you have the baptism in prison kind of reference. And then 
there's that reference. And when I say Dahmer, I'm not referencing him as like a lone serial killer. I'm referencing him as a practitioner on behalf of the cult entities for his murders, meaning that that style of murder is part of their ritual. I don't think that he operated on his own and did that on his own. I think that those were part of very elaborate rituals. I mean, it is certainly a disturbing possibility, but as we uh, work our way through a lot of these films, it's, it's definitely something that we're going to have to consider. And seriously, just wait till we get under the Silver Lake. All right, my friend, did you have anything else to say here before we sign off? Um, yes, uh, I did miss a Glasgow smile. It's Andy, right? The pimp. Yes. Um, when he dies, if you turn that image upside down with his head in the glass... You could argue it's an upside down Glasgow smile because you actually see oh, yeah, the way the blood drips. Yeah, it forms a Glasgow smile. Yeah. Well, I also thought it was really interesting because it's it's his mouth, right, that the table goes into more or less. Well, you think it's his mouth from the back, but then there's a shot from underneath and you see that it goes actually through his forehead. Oh, OK. OK. Yeah. Yeah, no, I always have, like thought that was a very odd way that his character died as well. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that, that's it, man. Uh, great show, man. Great exploring this film with you. And um, let's continue to uncover the truth. Absolutely. And, yeah, we will uh, definitely continue with this series at a further date with Mulholland Drive and the Silver Lake and probably a uh, bunch of other ones too obviously at some point we're going to do a nicholson one uh because again the whole joker thing the mega ritual with that is a big deal too but yeah there's all kinds of goodies in store with this uh figuratively speaking of course uh but anyway probably uh offended enough people for now with this particular podcast <laughs> so um and then that we'll sign off for now as always and i sincerely mean this good night and good luck to you Geronimo!
never getting used to it Got bales of weed and catapults with Santa wet diffused in it Shoot it over the castle wall, the Migra can't patrol it off From Berlin to the Great Wall, the greatest walls are bound to fall So legalize it, Vato, about a Genghis Chapo. Come on, legalize it, no need to advertise it. The weed cures the cancer, everybody even caught a realized it. But farmer don't make cash money when we rock that stash, honey. Best believe they sooner take it out your ass, Sunday. Come on, the man ain't getting wealthy with people getting healthy, right? Talking about high AZ, talking about that BMC. We got no economy if we ain't got no enemy. The Popo and the BP, DHS and Army, Honeywell and L3, Razor Wires, UAVs, Officer, excuse me, please. Said I'm just eating my burrito, not the droids you're looking for. See you all on payday, see you at the Safeway. On crazy checks, BP on that fast pay. I sing my hooly blues, y'all. I don't make the rules, y'all. Just paying my dues, y'all. But I'm just saying, sorry, hippies. If Great White Father don't make payroll, forget about your maple. It's just that one 